to my left is Supervisor Malia Cohen. Uh, our clerk is Andrea Osbury, and I want to thank SFGTV for broadcasting today's hearing, uh, specifically Jonathan Gomwalk. Uh, Madam Clerk, are there any announcements? Yes, please silence all electronic devices. Completed speaker cards and copies of any documents to be included as part of the file should be submitted to the clerk. Items acted upon today will appear on the October 28, 2014 Board of Supervisors agenda, unless otherwise stated. Okay, thank you. Um, Madam Clerk, will you please call item number one? Item number one is a resolution imposing interim zoning controls for the new ground floor office uses. Supervisor Kim is the author of item number one. Thank you, Chair Weiner. Colleagues, before us today are interim controls for 2nd Street between King and Folsom, um, the intent of which is to support um, and to promote an active retail frontage along 2nd Street, an emerging retail corridor on the south of Market, and support our neighborhood small businesses in this very hot real estate market. Our office has been working closely with the South Beach Merchants Association, many of whose members are actually here today. Um, it, over the past couple of months, our office has introduced um, a few interim controls, and we're finding that in this market, this very hot uh, real estate market that we're in right now, that these interim controls can be an important way to stabilize our neighborhood and existing businesses that are facing displacement pressures from office uses, which are currently allowed on ground floor in this area. According to Kidder and Matthews, San Francisco remains the hottest city in the nation for commercial real estate, something that's a testament to the city, with office rental rates surpassing dot-com era prices this quarter. No slowdown is in sight for the near future, and as the rapidly growing technology companies continue to expand throughout San Francisco, the vacancy rate in the second quarter fell another 20 points um, to 7.2%. This is even lower in areas of the South Market where there's tremendous demand for office space. These interim controls will help us to continue the work of developing permanent zoning through the Central Soma rezoning process. We want to promote ground, tour, uh, ground floor retail, um, which many of our workers and our residents have been advocating for. But we also recognize that there is a unique mixed-use character of the neighborhood, which includes small design firms, art spaces, and retail uses on the ground floor. And we try to balance all of those needs in these interim controls. The intent of the legislation is to support mixed residential and commercial character to promote the economic diversity of San Francisco and to support neighborhood-based planning and engagement um, of the South Beach Merchants Association in, in crafting permanent controls with the planning department. The Merchants Association has reached out to planning, um, business and property owners in the area to develop, um, to sensitively develop um, these controls and a lot of conversations have happened over the last um, couple of months to ensure that we were introducing something that um, the entire neighborhood could support. So what does this legislation do? The interim controls would require conditional use authorization for new office uses facing 2nd Street from King to Folsom for 18 months. The Commission shall consider in addition to the criteria listed in the Planning Code Section 303 the effect of the proposed new offices on the ground floor. The following uses will be exempt um, from these controls. One, any existing office would be exempt from the interim controls. Two, also the controls would not apply to buildings with more than 1,500 square foot of ground floor retail, as long as a minimum of 
1,500 square foot of retail is preserved. That is consideration of larger floor plates um, on the ground floor that may be used for office, but to ensure that we preserve a portion of the building uh, for retail. The south of the market continues to face tremendous growth thanks to the neighborhood's proximity to downtown existing and proposed transit. This growth is incredibly important for the city and um, as, we, um, as we understand to um, increase our density um, and to make sure that we are a greener and um, smart growth neighborhood. But we also need to make sure that we balance preservation and enhancement of ground floor, neighborhood serving retail that makes this area attractive to our residents, new office tenants, and their workers. We do have a few members of the South Beach Merchants Association and the South of Market Business Association to speak in support of this item today. And I do believe we have someone from planning department as well. So would you like to start with uh, the planning department or, or? If there are any comments from planning department. Oh. It sounds like there are not. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Supervisor Kim. Uh, so at this point, shall we move to public comment? Yes. Okay. Sorry, I thought you okay. were. We will open item number one up for public comment. Uh, Madam Clerk, do we have any car public comment cards for item one? Mm -hmm. We have a few cards. Public comment will be two minutes. Um, so we have Patrick Valentino, Leslie Hennessy, Kim um, Kobasek. I apologize in advance for if I mispronounce any names. Uh, Rob Strasser, Michael Anthony, and Alice Rogers. Okay, great. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Pat Valentino. I'm the Vice President of the South Beach Mission Bay Business Association, also known as the Merchants Association. Uh, we're here together with folks from our neighborhood association as well. I, I do want to recognize them. Uh, Second Street is, I live in the, in the neighborhood and Second Street is a prime uh, neighborhood corridor uh, for residents, for merchants, and for office workers. We've seen a significant amount of office gro growth in the area. As Supervisor Kim mentioned and referenced the report, it is the hottest market, uh, not just in town, but probably in the country. Uh, we're happy to have uh, the new workers in the area and the new businesses coming in, uh, but we do have to protect the ground floor storefront spaces. And the great thing about this legislation and how it was crafted uh, with Supervisor Kim's office is that it, it just carves out that storefront the remainder can be used for office. We think everybody benefits from this. Uh, the neighborhood wants this. Uh, the merchants do need the help. When you've got office uh, tenants coming in who are uh, either venture funded or successful uh, operating businesses, they can pay more than many of what these merchants can pay. So we can curate our neighborhood and help uh, support these uh, ground floor retail businesses and, and, and neighborhood commercial um, this preserves the neighborhood and uh, will help us out greatly. So thank you so much. Thank you. Next speaker. Hi, my name is Kim Kobasich. I am the co-owner of the Brickhouse Cafe and co-president of the South Beach Mission Bay Merchants Association. And um, just going along with what Patrick said, of course we welcome all of the commerce that big business, specifically tech, has brought into the neighborhood. It's actually really put us on the map in regards to just San Francisco in general. Um, but we are, as a small restaurant, small mom and pop, always in fear of being outbid at this point by um, bigger pockets and big industry. We personally have five years left on our lease and are not sure if um, we're going to be able to renew. Um, 
anyhow, we just um, have noticed many businesses going out, leaving the neighborhood, and um, and the difference between what office can pay is a matter of $100 per square foot. So um, we just thank you and hope you give us all your support. Thank you very much. Next speaker. Hi, my name is Leslie Hennessy. I own and operate Hennessy's Wines and Specialty Foods on 2nd Street. I've been there for 10 years. I've been a wine merchant in San Francisco for 37 years. And uh, I'm on the 2nd Street corridor. And we have lost in our neighborhood, in the 25 years I've actually lived there, we've had a lopsided neighborhood. We have lost um, gift stores, uh, bookstores. We need a hardware store. We need a um, locksmith. We need a meat market. None of these people are going to come in and pay $5 a square foot. And that's what's happening. The software companies that are able to pay 5 to $10 a square foot are coming in, going to the landlords and saying, we'll take it, we'll pay you anything you want. And then the retail environment that's there, and there used to be, as I said, three to five of them right across the street from me, they're gone. My rent alone has gone up 175% in 10 years. I'd like to repeat that. My rent, when I got there 10 years ago, was $1.50 a square foot. I just signed a new lease, a temporary one, for three years at $5 a square foot. Now, how have I been able to do that? Well, I'm making less money, I'm cutting corners, and I'm raising my prices. Most importantly, I'm making less money. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next speaker. Hi, uh, my name is Rob Strasser. I'm the uh, general manager of 21st Amendment Brewery uh, on 2nd Street. And uh, I'm surprised that Les got uh, $5 per square foot because I've, I've heard of it uh, being more ex expensive than that already. So. Um, I just had, you know, I watched Gordon Biersch leave uh, the Embarcadero not long ago. Uh, they couldn't quite match the, the rent that was offered by Mozilla. Uh, sorry to see them go after 20 years. Um, my neighbors across the street, American Grilled Cheese Kitchen, uh, I know they've been struggling to keep their spot as well. I'm not sure where, where that stands, if they're going to have to leave or not. But, uh, it, it, you know, part of what I love about that neighborhood and uh, and the residents as well, I'm sure, is the diversity b between residential, uh, the the business, as well as all the retail and and uh, options you have for uh, eating and and uh, other things. So, I'd like to maintain that that diversity, and uh, and therefore maintain what's great about um, that that neighborhood. So, that's all I got to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next speaker. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Anthony. I'm a board member with the South, Be South Beach Rincon Mission Bay Neighborhood Association. I thank you for allowing me to speak today uh, in support of the legislation. My wife and I have lived in the South Beach neighborhood for more than eight years, and we've been energized by the new businesses, new business activity, not to mention the excitement created by your San Francisco Giants. <laughs> it's a great neighborhood. 
However, while tech industry workers and sports fans coming into the neighborhood as, uh, as well as all the new building activity provides for a lively environment, residents still yearn for the development of a real residential neighborhood with a more balanced blend of neighborhood-serving retail businesses along our, our corridors. We fully understand the property owner's motive to maximize his or her return by renting to the highest bidder. In today's market, that usually means creating ever more high-tech office space. And of course, this legislation will allow the vast majority of a building's square footage to be leased as office space if that should be the case. It only asks that some ground floor space be devoted to neighborhood-serving retail that our residents want and need. I would appreciate your vote in favor of this legislation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next speaker. Good afternoon, <clears throat> Supervisors. I'm Alice Rogers. I'm Vice President of the South Beach Rincon Mission Bay Neighborhood Association. And together with the um, South Beach Business Merchants Association, um, we work together with Supervisor Kim's office to develop um, these interim controls, which I think are quite modest but extremely important. Um, I've lived through the 2000.com boom. Um, where we had really wholesale evictions of entire neighborhoods. So we really appreciate um, Supervisor Kim's office stepping up and helping develop these interim controls for uh, the short-term basis. This is really part of a three-prong approach that the Neighborhood Association is taking um, to, to quiet things for about 18 months while we can address zoning. Um, we intend to be a, an active voice um, in the Central Soma Plan uh, rezoning development, and um, our focus will be creating ground floor that is suitably scaled for neighborhood and transparent, which is something that um, we're not seeing these days with all of the days of frosted glass windows. Um, and we also understand that it's neighborhood's responsibility to um, promote its merchants and patronize its merchants. So we also have a task force um, uh, to look at marketing and encouraging small merchants. But the very first step is securing um, our ground floor for the next 18 months until we can get the rest of the work going. Thank you. Thanks, Speaker. Good afternoon. Tom Radulovich with Livable City. Just wanted to speak in favor of this ordinance. Thanks, Supervisor Kim, for bringing it forward. One of the things that makes a neighborhood livable is that kind of small-scale neighborhood commercial districts and making sure that those grow and thrive. Soma is a very difficult place to, to nurture those. Uh, all of the streets are huge, traffic sewers, businesses really struggle to create uh, that kind of sensitive retail ecology that uh, um, kind of mutually beneficial and really benefits the neighbors, uh, merchants, and so on. So uh, the city is going to invest a lot of money in Second Street to make it that street. Uh, we're planning this uh, great project that's going to make it a much more bike-friendly street, wider sidewalks, streetscape improvements, street lighting, all of that. So finally, I think there's going to be a central commercial spine for uh, SOMA, and that's really exciting. And we think that this ordinance is the appropriate land re use response to that. Uh, the current zoning, which is MUO, mixed-use office, 
does, is just really about office development. doesn't think about ground floors at all. But on a street like Second, it is important to think about what goes in on the ground floor. That's going to make or break uh, this neighborhood as a walkable, uh, livable place. So um, these probably don't make sense as the long-term controls, but I think they're going to get us through uh, an 18-month period where we can discuss, well, what are the appropriate controls for uh, a quarter like Second? Um, we definitely believe in mixed use, uh, but sometimes it, it makes sense to be a little prescriptive about what you want to see on the ground floor to maintain that human scale and also to get uh, those businesses to grow and thrive. It's not only great for residents, but great for the office workers who work there as well. They'll benefit from having all of those um, businesses within walking distance. And it's really going to um, cause a lot of uh, automobile trips not to happen. Um, if you have all of those services within walking distance of where you work or where you live, um, your need to get in your car and drive other places to uh, enjoy those uh, diminishes greatly. So it's also a great sustainability measure. So we urge you to support this today and look forward to being part of the conversation about what should be permanent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next speaker. Hi, guys. I'm Nate. I'm the owner of the American Grilled Cheese Kitchen at 2nd Street in South Park. And I came to publicly thank you guys for bringing this to the public forum for proper discussion and to thank my peers and neighbors in the neighborhood. I think one thing we're not touching on is the growth in business to the area was anchored by the retail tenants and the residents moving to the area. And yeah, the San Francisco Giants. But they're only there 81 days a year. We're there 365 days a year. And why is it such an attractive area? Sure, there's a Caltrain station, but people want to be there because it's cool. There's great places to eat. There's great places to patronize. If we're not encouraging that growth, we're not encouraging the growth of the neighborhood. We're not encouraging the Second Street re redevelopment plan that's going to encourage pedestrian traffic and a great pedestrian corridor. And to some of my neighborhood, uh, some of my neighbors here, what they, what they mentioned and taking this a little bit further is, when offices are blacked out after 5 p.m. and we have screens over the windows, crime happens. There's a public safety thing here. Um, I know on more than one occasion, crime has been averted because a business has been open, such as a bar or a cafe or a restaurant or a retailer is open at night and provides a nice public safety measure, whether that's lights being on, people being in storefronts. We're creating a really nice environment here in South Beach. And uh, as Rob mentioned, I've been a threat of losing my lease in a great spot, and I hope to. We've reached an agreement. We're going to continue to contribute to this neighborhood and its future. So thank you. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment on item number one? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Supervisor Cohen. Thank you very much. I actually just wanted to acknowledge um, Supervisor Kim and this legislation. It's really important. It's something that we in District 10 have been dealing with um, earlier in the year. This committee dealt with a similar issue um, uh, uh, dealing the, around the um, in, with the design center. Uh, and so I want to just to take a moment just to compliment you in that, that foresight. It's, it's very important that we begin to protect and not cannibalize our um, very precious retail as well as PDR space. Supervisor Kim. Thank you. Um, I just want to thank um, our residents and our small business owners uh, and merchants for coming out today. You know, zoning ensures um, 
balance in our land use here in our city um, and can also support um, the development and preservation of complete neighborhoods, um, which includes neighborhoods serving retail. And I think that was really well articulated um, throughout the public comment. Um, these amenities are incredibly important um, to our neighborhood for the services that they provide, whether it's places for people to eat, to see their friends, um, to shop. Um, or whether there are eyes on the streets in the evenings or the weekends. Um, it's true that we don't have a lot of neighborhoods serving um, corridors in the South of Market. Um, it was formerly largely you know, a manufacturing and warehouse neighborhood, and obviously um, that has changed tremendously over the last um, 15 to 20 years. Um, and as we build all these residential neighborhoods, we want to make sure that there are real neighborhoods for um, our new residents to, um, to have access to. Um, Second Street, um, in particular, and Folsom are the corridors that planning department and our, neighborhood, and our neighborhoods have long identified um, to be our neighborhood serving um, corridors. Um, and as uh, Mr. Radulovich also mentioned, um, Second Street is a corridor that our city is going to be investing over $10 million in um, to make um, walkable, bike-friendly, um, and just a place really that our neighborhood considers to be um, uh, the spine that connects us um, to the rest of the city from Market to King Street. So um, this legislation really, did, though, did come from our residents and our merchants, and so I want to thank you for your um, work with our office, and particularly um, April Veneracion, who does our land use, um, to bring this forward. And um, colleagues, I ask for your support. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm extremely supportive of uh, this measure, and we actually did something uh, I think probably maybe not identical, but almost identical about a year ago in Upper Market when we were starting to get more and more uh, indications that we were going to, you know, with all of the new development happening in Upper Market and all the brand new retail space coming in uh, and this automatic uh, default to bring in uh, uh, real estate offices and title companies and, and other uses that are certainly important to have in a neighborhood, but that uh, uh, typically should not be on the ground floor retail level. And it can, uh, I totally agree that with the public safety uh, issue that was raised, but it goes uh, even beyond that, that just in terms of the vibe uh, of the neighborhood, when you have uh, daytime office uses that are closing down at 4 or 5 o'clock that are shuttered the entire weekend, having a few of those is fine, but when you can hit a tipping point where a commercial corridor just loses its uh, its energy, its vitality, and uh, this is exactly when uh, zoning controls should go in place to make sure uh, that we don't hit that tipping point uh, in this area or in any other area of the city. It will be on uh, on the neighborhood to make sure this is getting enforced. I will say that in Upper Market, after we put in uh, the, the same type of interim controls, uh, a few real estate offices opened up, or one opened up and one has said they're opening up, and I think they don't even realize they're supposed to do it. And we need to make sure, you need to make sure that it gets uh, uh, enforced. Um, I will also just say, and this will preview maybe some of the formula retail discussions that we're going to have uh, in committee next week, and I raised this when we classified banks as formula retail two years ago, which I supported, and that is that when it comes to whether it's banks or title companies or medical offices or real estate offices or whatever kind of office it might be, um, we should be encouraging them to go onto the second floor uh, of a lot of the retail space that exists or that's coming online and actually should be making it easy for them to open up on second floor so that they can come in and have a choice. I can go through a lengthy conditional use process to seek a retail uh, space, or I can just very quickly and easily go on to the second floor. These kinds of uses, and I include banks in this category, 
we, you know, they need to exist and they're important for neighborhoods. They should be encouraged through our zoning controls to go on to the second floor. Uh, and I, I will be raising this issue when, some, when the proposal to expand uh, certain aspects of formula retail uh, come up for discussion uh, next week. Uh, but with that said, I think this is very important, and I'm glad the neighborhood is getting ahead of this issue rather than reacting to it after it's already uh, too late. And so I applaud that, and I'll be supporting this. Uh, so Supervisor Kim, I'll interpret that as a motion to forward this to the board with positive recommendation. Thank you. Okay, and we'll take that without objection. Thank you, colleagues. Um, Madam Clerk, can you, uh, Mr. Johnson, did you want two and three called together? Yes or no? I was thinking to talk about both. Okay. Okay. Uh, so pub separate public comments or public comment on both together? Okay. So, Madam Clerk, will you please call items two and three together? Item number two is the ordinance amending the planning code and zoning map establishing the Visadero Street Neighborhood Commercial District. And item number three is also an ordinance amending the planning code and zoning map establishing the Fillmore Street Neighborhood Commercial District. Okay. Uh, and uh, these are both uh, sponsored by Supervisor Breed and uh, we have Connor Johnson from Supervisor Breed's office here. Mr. Johnson. Thank you, Chair Weiner, and good afternoon, committee members. Uh, so we do have two NCDs, and ironically enough, uh, both of them actually do help facilitate second-floor retail, as uh, Chair Weiner was just talking about, so it's a, a great segue. Uh, I will try to be brief here. We have uh, two ordinances today, one creating a neighborhood commercial district, or NCD, on Fillmore Street, and another creating an NCD on Divisadero Street. I should start with a little history because these two ordinances have been around for some time, actually longer than, uh, than I've been here, certainly. Uh, the legislation before you today was born out of the community. Supervisor Breed and her predecessors have worked with the Divisadero and Fillmore neighborhoods, particularly their merchants, who want a more tailored zoning structure. Uh, Tom Radulovich, the executive director of Livable City and everybody's in-house planning code expert, helped craft what the NCDs could look like. And in November of 2012, the Small, Bus Small Business Commission unanimously recommended a Divisadero NCD saying, and I quote, individualized zoning controls on the corridor will increase the vitality of the street and provide for increased flexibility in zoning controls and adaptation to emerging trends. Then in March of 2013, the Small Business Commission unanimously recommended the Fillmore NCD and recognized, and I quote, Supervisor Breed for her extensive community outreach, adding feedback from constituents have made this ordinance stronger. Then on June 13, 2013, the Planning Commission voted to support both uh, of those pieces of legislation. However, at that time in June of 2013, and in response to community concerns, Supervisor Breed had incorporated some nuanced but fairly strict formula retail controls. The planning department was just about to start its citywide formula retail study and requested the Board of Supervisors to hold off on any new formula retail legislation. So Supervisor Breed accommodated that request and held these two NCDs since about June of 2013. As you know, planning's report is now completed and new citywide formula retail legislation is moving forward, coming to this committee in the next couple weeks, I believe. Supervisor Breed is satisfied with planning's formula retail report and optimistic about the outcome of the citywide legislation. So she has removed specific formula retail controls from these NCDs and is ready to move the ordinances forward. So with all of that prologue, let me discuss what the ordinances actually do. Uh, these two NCDs allow denser, more, more varied commercial uses 
encourage diverse modes of transit, invite more active and appealing architecture, and create a framework for the neighborhoods to tailor planning controls to their unique needs and atmosphere. Both the Divisadero and Fillmore communities are working to foster their unique neighborhood feel. Establishing named neighborhood commercial district is an important part of their long-term plans to create vibrant neighborhood serving corridors. So let me just get into the details on item two, the Divisadero NCD. Uh, this proposed Divisadero NCD runs 12 blocks along Divis from Haight at the south end to, uh, to O'Farrell at the north. This NCD will replace the Divisadero Alcohol Restricted Use District, or RUD, which was created about 10 years ago and runs from Haight to Geary. This area is home to businesses like Club Wyzema, NOPA, Mojo's, The Independent, and Oasis Cafe. Uh, it is a very walkable and vibrant mixed-use corridor. The NCD legislation will permit certain commercial uses on the second floor of buildings with no prior residential use, as uh, Supervisor Weiner was just discussing. It protects existing housing and encourages new housing while maintaining rear yards to preserve open space. It updates the parking controls. It removes the Divisadero Alcohol Street Restricted Use District, but preserves the prohibition on new liquor stores and the new NCD. It also removes the unwieldy restrictions on the type of alcohol that can be sold in existing liquor stores. The NCD maintains the prohibition on fringe financial services, uh, check cashing or payday loan stores in the NCD. Uh, it provides a five-foot height bonus for properties zoned 40X and 50X, which allows for more active and inviting ground floor uses. And it defaults to the pending new citywide policies regarding formula retail. And just to reiterate that point, the city has extensive data-driven formula retail legislation in the works, the result of over a year of careful study. The, Divisor, the Divisadero NCDs will follow all the same processes and, and controls as other NCDs. There is also some general code cleanup recommended by our friends Tom Radulovich and Deputy City Attorney Judy Boyajan, which I'm not even sure I understand, but I'm quite confident that they do. Uh, <laughs> So that is the Divisadero NCD, and then Chair Weiner, if you'd like, I can, I can discuss item three, the Fillmore NCD as well in detail now. Uh, the proposed Fillmore Neighborhood Commercial District run, runs nine blocks along Fillmore from McAllister at the south end to Bush Street at the north. This area is home to businesses like the 1300 Restaurant, Sheba Lounge, the historic venue, the Fillmore, the famous State Bird Provisions Restaurant, and the Boom Boom Room. It's also where Supervisor Breed grew up, and it spent decades under the yoke of the redevelopment agency and is now trying to nurture its own unique character as a shopping, entertainment, and cultural hotspot that can attract visitors from near and far. In their case report, planning staff outlined this history and the need for an NCD in the Fillmore. I just want to read a portion of their report because it was very well said. Uh, this neighborhood was under the authority of the redevelopment agency for several decades, and this stretch of Fillmore Street experienced a concentrated period of development in the late 1980s and early 1990s. While the new development kept the density, the new buildings did not maintain the historic ties to the street that the historic ground floor commercial spaces once had. Further, in the last decade, the neighborhood underwent another wave of urban renewal in the form of a new jazz district. In many ways, this effort was successful in bringing increased nightlife activity back to the area. However, the street still suffers from a lack of activity and vitality during the day. Creating a named NCD for the Fillmore is a positive first step in improving the vitality of this commercial street because it provides a mechanism for the community to further build upon its identity. 
The Fillmore NCD ordinance specifically permits certain commercial uses on the second floor and philanthropic services as of right, encourages new housing and pro prohibits residential conversion on the second and third floors, updates the parking controls, provides the same five foot height bonus for the ground floor in zones 40X and 50X, and as with Divisadero, defaults to the pending new citywide policies regarding formula retail. And I should mention, there is an ongoing neighborhood planning process in nearby Japantown, right on the other side of Geary, with an NCD or NCT likely coming there too. So we were very careful not to include any Japantown parcels in the Fillmore NCD. Just in sum, these neighborhood commercial district ordinances are the product of a very close and thorough consultation with the communities they will serve. We didn't ask individual merchants to come to speak today as they are small business owners who would need to close shop, but I do want to thank Solange Gabriella from the Divisadero Merchants Association and Manetta White from the Fillmore Merchants Association for their involvement and support. I think at least one of them is here today and will speak during public comment. More than any specific provision about height or parking or signage, these NCDs will create an infrastructure, a vehicle for merchants and residents to help shape the future of their neighborhoods. So thank you, committee members, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Colleagues, any questions? Okay. That was probably too thorough. Yeah, very <laughs> thorough there. Thank you. Make sure to mention that to Supervisor Breed. Um, does the planning department wish to present on this, or did? Yeah. Diego Sanchez with the planning department. Uh, thank you, supervisors, for this uh, moment to talk about these two NCDs. In general, there are currently about 30 NCDs in the city. Uh, the oldest of the NCDs include the Broadway, the Castro, the Haight. Uh, these types of district, uh, as mentioned, allowed for more tailored controls and help to protect or enhance the unique characteristics associated with the neighborhood. Uh, in general, the department supports creating individually named uh, commercial, neighborhood commercial districts. Um, regarding the Divisadero uh, NCD, the proposal to establish one uh, was originally heard on November 29, 2012, uh, and was voted by the Planning Commission to recommend with approval with modifications. The department thanks the supervisor for modifying the ordinance to incorporate all of the commission's original recommendations. Uh, regarding the Fillmore Street NCD, uh, this was heard uh, also on November 29, 2012, and again was voted uh, by the Planning Commission to approve the ordinance with uh, modifications. Uh, the ordinance all has also been amended to include these modifications. Um, and we're very grateful to be behind this in support of these two NCDs as we find these uh, step forward for these two areas of the city. Uh, that completes my presentation. Thank you. Okay. Uh, at this point, we will open up items two and three to public comment. Uh, I have a few public comment, or one public comment card for Tom Radulovich. Uh, Mr. Radulovich. Um, good afternoon, Supervisors. Tom Radulovich with Livable City. Uh, just wanted to thank uh, Supervisor Breed and uh, uh, Connor for all their work, uh, not only talking to the community, but just really trying to, to create some great nuanced uh, commercial districts. These uh, commercial districts right now are NC3 and NC2, so they're kind of generic commercial districts. I think by creating these customized controls, um, we can do a few things. One is we can make some planning code changes that make sense in these commercial districts today, and uh, you heard about those. Some of those changes, I think, uh, make a lot of sense in other neighborhood commercial districts, and I'm excited that we're piloting them here. Uh, one example is in the Fillmore NCD. Uh, it allows philanthropic administrative services, which is planning code term for nonprofit 
nonprofit organizations uh, to locate on the second floor in our NC districts. As somebody who runs a small nonprofit, I can tell you the places where nonprofits have traditionally been, the downtown, we're getting chased out by the high rents. Uh, so if they can make a home for uh, nonprofits in neighborhood commercial districts, not on the ground floor where those office-type uses might deaden the ground floor, but on the second floor makes a lot of sense. Uh, the other thing uh, that Connor mentioned is in uh, the Divisadero NCD, uh, NC2 is very restrictive. There's a lot of uses that can happen on the first floor, but very few that can happen on the second floor. There were a few buildings that never had a residential use on the second floor. The Harding Theater is one example. Uh, the problem with the current zoning is you couldn't have uses like a restaurant use. Go on to the second floor. Uh, this ordinance would say if there's no prior residential use, you have a lot more flexibility in what goes in on the second floor. Brand new building, yeah, second floor should be... Uh, uh, residential because you can build it to residential standards. Often though those second floor spaces in existing buildings are very ill-suited to residential use. Don't have rear yards, don't have the right exposure, those kinds of things. And they have a commercial use already. This will provide a lot of flexibility in the reuse of existing buildings while still being very pro-housing. So we'd uh, uh, encourage you to support these ordinances today and forward them to the full board. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment? Commissioner? Good afternoon, Supervisors. Uh, my name is Minetta White. I am here on behalf of the Lower Fillmore Merchants Association. I want to also thank Supervisor Breed and Connor for doing all this work. It's been a long time coming. Um, so, as I said, we are in support of the uh, Fillmore NCD as this will allow for more detailed consideration for our neighborhood. Uh, this is a great step in our commercial corridor to promote our unique and cultural feel. Uh, in our neighborhood, and uh, we have a lot going on, and this is the timing of uh, this is great because we have some new businesses coming into the neighborhood. So I ask that you support uh, this legislation as written today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment? Yes. Uh, Ace Washington, I have two minutes here, but I'm hoping that I get a little more than two minutes because this supervisor who's witnessing what's going on, you're talking about the Fillmore. Well, actually, you're talking about the field, no more. I'm surprised that I wasn't notified on any of these procedures, but I'm not surprised why I wasn't. But I'm also here to make a special announcement. I just went in and talked to my supervisor, London B, which I call the Queen B. I made the announcement. I'm making it here officially, specifically to this merchants association that's in the field, which I don't know too much about. I, Ace Washington been around here for over 30 years here at City Hall and over 50 years in my community has accepted the position as the Fillmore Corridor Ambassador. That's right, not a bastard, but I am the ambassador. And anybody that questions that or have a problem with that, they could come see me. I've been working diligently for over 25 years. But let's go back to what we're here talking about now this in, in ABC, whatever it is. I would like respectfully to hold that up. And so there's discussion in our community of what the hell this is all about. Because I have seen it come for over 25 years, the CBD, the CAC, the Fillmore Mergers Association, the this, the that, and all of this. Everything has failed us miserably as a result of the urban renewal, which is known as the Negro removal. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm the only black up here speaking right now. There's a couple of us in here. But without a doubt, even in this city, 
There is a vacuum, there is a void, there is a misrepresentation of African Americans. So anybody that's putting this thing together, me as Ace Washington, the Fillmore Corridor Ambassador, self-acclaimed, but I am there as a historian, need to know more about this, whatever you're putting together. And whoever's putting it together. You say you've been doing this over here, I ain't heard not one word about it. So I respectfully, please, hold this off until the community to know what the hell is going on here. Because this is going, I see what's, I see what's writing on the wall. You're not including us at all. We have been damaged by the city and county for over 50 years. And now they're going to have new laws like SB 1404 from Senate. Thank you very much. Please go open up the doors. I Thank you very much. Say that this be held Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment on items two or three? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Okay. Um, Colleagues, could I have a motion to forward items two and three to the full Board of Supervisors with positive recommendation? Okay, and we'll take that without objection. Madam Clerk, uh, we're going to take uh, item five out of order. Can you please call item number five? Item number five is a hearing on night noise permits in residential areas. And Supervisor Kim uh, called for this hearing. Supervisor. Thank you, um, and thank you for um, holding this hearing at today's Land Use Committee, um, Chair Wiener. Um, several months ago, uh, residents had approached our office, um, particularly from the Rincon Hill neighborhood, um, to bring to our attention the increasing amount of nighttime construction in around their neighborhood. This area in particular has five active jobs, 201 Folsom Street, 45 Lansing, 340 Fremont, 399 Fremont and 280 Beale Street surrounding their complexes. We've heard from several constituents about the impact that nighttime noise is having on their quality of life, and in particular how their health and well-being is being impacted by lack of sleep, either because of construction noise that's going on through um, through late into the night, often until 10 or 11 p.m., and then often starting up again, um, sometimes as early as 5 in the morning. Um, since July, my office has been meeting with city staff um, from Department of Building Inspection, contractors, developers, and residents to increase communication amongst all parties about nighttime noise activities occurring in the area. Since July, um, nighttime permits have been declining, yet permits are still being issued um, that impact the quality of life for our, our residents. I absolutely support the growth um, that is happening in our city, in particular the growth that is happening in the district that I represent. Um, I know that I quote this often, but John Ram has said, um, our planning director, that 80% of all of um, our city's development is happening in 20% of our city, and most of that 20%, of course, is happening um, in our district, in the south of Market, and Mission Bay. While we appreciate the pace of this development, because there's such a demand, um, both for often office and residential. We have to recognize that there are existing residents that have been here for years, um, as long as 15 years, and we need to balance that construction and growth with the health and well-being of our residents. Our residents get it. They know they're investing in a growing and developing neighborhood, and they are excited about the infrastructure, new um, neighbors, um, and new workers that will be coming into their neighborhood um, to make it more complete. Um, but they do. Um, they would like us to figure out a process and procedure in which we could balance it 
better. Um, since 2009, the Rincon Hill Transbay downtown area has grown by 1,600 units. The new development that is happening to be um, that is happening is projected to bring an additional 4,400 units, 6 million square feet of office, and 100 square 100,000 square feet of retail. This is a tremendous amount of growth in a short period of time. Today, um, we did request um, from city staff um, to present to us on the current process of issuing nighttime noise permits, existing noise thresholds based on the city's noise ordinance, and to clarify the jurisdiction of our various agencies. And we look forward to continuing to work with DBI staff and contractors on this issue. Um, and we appreciate the tremendous amount of pressure that DBI is currently under to approve permits requested by our companies to respond um, to our incredible need for growth. Um, I want to recognize I'm Director Tom Huey um, for listening both to our office and to our residents. While he's not here right now, he has directed his staff in the interim to not approve nighttime permits in the downtown area until we can develop a workable um, solution that balances everyone's needs. Um, before um, I well, actually, let me list the presenters that we do have today. Um, first, we have DPW. Uh, we have Lynn Fong, who will describe our night, night noise permit process and provide an example of noise activities. We have DPH, June Weintraub, to present an overview of the city's noise ordinance and the impact of noise and quality of life and health of residents. We also have SFMTA, Brian Dussault, who will describe the SFMTA Blue Book and the street of major importance and consideration in granting street closure permits. And finally, um, DBI, Patrick O'Riordan, who will describe our DBI night noise permit process, notification process, and present on the number of nighttime permit applications and the number approved. Um, our office understands that some construction needs to occur um, very early in the morning um, and very late at night, um, particularly due to the congestion in this area and some restrictions um, in the region about when you can get on the Bay Bridge and off. Um, and we also know that this development is incredibly important. In fact, you know, when I ran four years ago, um, I often heard from our Rincon Hill neighborhoods on when the infrastructure and development that the city had long promised would actually begin. Um, but now that we are on this expedited schedule, which I think everyone supports, um, we want to make sure that there is some consideration um, of the residents that live there. And we hear a lot, particularly from families, um, young families, um, pregnant mothers, um, and families of young kids who are really having a lot of trouble um, putting their kids to bed um, and having a full night's <coughs> sleep. Um, and we just want to figure out the best process moving forward that we can do some nighttime construction. Um, we were able to do that when we were first in office because at first it was just the Transbay Terminal um, that was happening on, on a 24-hour 24 24-hour basis. But now with, you know, close to 14 sites in this neighborhood that are happening at the same time, I think that we just need to develop some better coordination um, because um, it's a lot more complex when you have, when you go from one um, to 14 projects. So unless there are any comments from colleagues, I'd like to start um, with our presentation, starting with uh, DPW. Sure. I just want to make a couple of comments. Sure. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Kim, for calling this hearing. Um, nighttime construction is definitely an important topic of conversation, and uh, it can be incredibly uh, disruptive. I've, uh, um, in my district, we have a very tiny version of this in terms of some of the overnight work that the Department of Public Works uh, has had to perform uh, during the Castro Street project, including several nights uh, of grinding work on the street overnight, uh, which can be incredibly uh, disruptive. And I, and I uh, as Supervisor, as I'm sure you do, I receive the emails uh, when you have that kind of highly disruptive work. And in fact, there's going to be grinding work at uh, Castro Market on Wednesday night, uh, 
block from where I live, uh, and so I'm sure I'll get to experience it firsthand myself. Um, with that said, I'm glad we're having a hearing on this because one thing, um, uh, whatever one's view is about when nighttime work should be uh, happening or not happening, I, I really think it's important uh, to view this not in a vacuum but in the overall context, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we can have that broader context discussion uh, today because uh, I think it's important uh, for people to understand that everything is a trade-off uh, and that if we reduce the amount of overnight work, um, we're going to be extending the length of projects, which means it'll take longer and there will be more days when streets are blocked and when businesses are disruptive because the businesses are operating during the day and people who are trying to work at, at home during the day can't work at home because there is uh, disruption. And so there is no, uh, there's no free lunch, so to speak. If you, if you restrict certain hours, you're going to extend the life of the project, uh, period. Um, there uh, are also uh, issues about what work uh, happening during the day um, has implications around muni, around traffic, around pedestrian safety, and so on and so forth, because there are various reasons why work happens at night uh, and uh, level of disruption being unacceptable during the day is one example. So in my Castro and Market example, although I, I, you know, we asked and neighbors were asking, can this be done during the day? Uh, the department determined that shutting down Castro and Market during the day was not going to be acceptable in terms of just traffic flow and transportation uh, in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, so I, I just um, hope that in discussing this, uh, we, we don't simply look at the very, very real disruption that, that overnight work causes because it absolutely impacts people's lives. Um, but so does extending the length of a project overall. Uh, so does uh, um, uh, messing up muni during the day with certain kinds of work. So does pedestrian uh, disruption. So does traffic disruption, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, we also know that uh, um, we recently had a little kerfuffle here at City Hall uh, around the, the, the proposed Melarose Tax Assessment District at Trans Bay. We also know that we don't get that money to, for the Transbay Terminal and the downtown extension until certificates of occupancy are issued uh, for these buildings. So it's a, it is a complicated uh, issue, and, I, and I, my hope is that we will be able to discuss all of these issues today um, and not um, just one important issue in a vacuum, because I think we have to view everything uh, together. Supervisor Cohen. Thank you very much. One thing I wanted just to add my voice to, yes, um, I'm glad this is, that we're discussing this and that this item is a hearing. In my mind, a hearing is an opportunity for both sides, all sides, to come to the table and discuss and address the problems that are arising. So it's not just your constituents that are having an issue, but this, um, this challenge um, that the constituents are raising in terms of noise, it's a very real one, I think, it's, and, it's a, and it's a reasonable one. But we also need to pay attention to the impact um, on the folks that are working and the delay of work, not only will have an impact on just traffic and the overall length of the of the of the project but also want to make sure that we are just bringing people to the table to, together to begin to discuss how we can come up with best practices and come up with some shared recommendations so that we can mitigate this and this is pretty unique because it would allow us a framework to continue the conversation moving forward in my district we have a lot of development happening um, and it has an impact on uh, residential now granted it's not 24 hours but the same level of pressures and frustration 
options also exist. So this conversation is actually very timely, and I'm hopeful, I think I see a couple folks in the mayor's office here as well, that we'll be able to come together. I don't know if it, if it necessarily a work group is, ne is, is, um, is needed, but a we can begin to look and figure out um, a strategy to to begin to to begin to have the uh, conversations to address these challenges that the that neighborhoods are bringing up. But also, I just wanted to call into attention the um, the human cost um, and that work stoppage and how it impacts um, our working people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Kim. Yeah. So I, I did want to bring up um, a member of DPW to come up and speak first and we have Lin Fong and I just also just wanted to add that we absolutely are looking for balance we're not just looking for one perspective um, to be the winning perspective in this neighborhood even our residents get that the faster the construction happens that the faster the neighborhood that they invested in will occur I think they just want some balance and some um, Procedures put in place that will ensure that when there is nighttime construction noise that we look at the times and how necessary it is, how late it needs to go, how early it needs to stop, and when it does occur, how to make sure that we keep the noise down um, to a minimum. And I know, again, when I started in 2011 and there was only one project and that was a Transbay terminal and only one residential building, the millennium that was impacted, we were able to do a lot of ad hoc work um, to make sure that our residents were able to sleep at night. But we now have 14 major construction developments happening in the same neighborhood. 14 construction developments happening in Rincon neighborhood and Transbay. Um, so it's, we just need to figure out how to coordinate. And I actually feel very lucky. Our constituents are super patient. Um, they could have said, we don't want any construction to happen. And that's not the request that's coming from our residents. They want to figure out a process that balances the hours and all to f also to figure out how to reduce the level of noise at night. Um, because you know not every worker um, doesn't refrain from yelling, the backup noise of the trucks are incredibly hard to sleep through. I mean, these are the things that we really want to work through so that we can keep um, the activities going at night, but we do it in a way that respects the residents that live there. Thank you, Ms. Fong. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Board committee members, my name is Lynn Fong from Public Works, and I'm here today to go over the Public Works permitting process for construction activities and projects that are conducted at night. I'm not sure why it's not forwarding. So, first of all, I wanted to give you a little context about noise levels of activities that are typically encountered both indoors and out of doors. For example, a common outdoor noise such as a running diesel truck or indoor, no indoor noise such as a garbage disposal are approximately 80 decibels, about 15 decibels higher than normal speech. Although the ambient noise level in San Francisco varies greatly depending on the density, traffic, and other activities, you can typically expect noise to be approximately 50 to 70 decibels during the daytime and 30 to 45 decibels at night. A pneumatic tool, such as a jackhammer or other digging and vibrating devices, is around 100 decibels. That's just to put the noise level in context. No, it just, it's not moving forward. Oh, there. 
Okay, so the rules and regulations governing night noise can be found in the police code article 29 titled The Regulation of Noise. The police code states that it shall be unlawful for any person between the hours of 8 p.m. and 7 a.m. of the following day to either erect, construct, demolish, excavate, alter, or repair any building or structure if the noise level, is cre noise level created is in excess of 5 decibels above ambient noise levels unless, and this is the big unless, a permit is obtained either from the building department or public works department. The Department of Building Inspection or the Public Works Department can allow noise at night and a permit can be considered and issued for the following circumstances. Construction noise in the vicinity of the proposed work would be less objectionable at night than during daytime activities. Obstruction and interference with traffic, particularly on streets of major importance, would be less objectionable at night than during the daytime if there's great economic hardship that would occur if work were spread over a longer time or the project will abate or prevent hazard to life or property. And the work will abate or prevent um, the pro and the proposed night work is in the general public interest. So in the majority of cases, public works authorizes night work through a night work permit for two reasons. One, if there is an emergency, such as a water main break or a gas leak. Or two, if the Municipal Transportation Authority, also known as MTA, the blue, their blue book does not allow daytime work or restricts daytime work. In these instances where daytime work is not allowed or restricted and MTA is unable to issue a special traffic permit, which would grant a waiver to the Blue Book requirements, the contractor is referred to Public Works to issue a night work permit. For example, if you take a look at this, on 4th Street between Market to Bryant Street, the MTA Blue Book restricts contractors from working between the hours of 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. The purpose of the restriction is to allow proper vehicular traffic flow in this location and to reduce traffic congestion. So MTA may not issue a waiver to work in the days, daytime due to the overwhelming traffic congestion and the conditions that exist, especially for those streets that lead to major on-ramps, the contractor would necessarily work at night. So we need to take into account all the varied pressures on the use of the public right-of-way, and as a, we as a collective need to make a choice. We can authorize work at night, which can be very difficult and disruptive, or we can authorize daytime work, which will greatly impact traffic. Well, shower traffic at best is a crawl, and adding on the reduction of lanes can become an added nightmare. Here's some data on night work permits issued by Public Works. 259 permits for night work were issued over the past 12 months, and as a comparison, Public Works has also issued 12,000 excavation permits for work in the daytime during the same 12-month period. This highlights the sheer volume and unprecedented number of construction projects in the city. And it should be noted that night work permits accounted for 2% of the total number of construction permits issued by Public Works. This hopefully shows that Public Works does strive to work with MTA together to minimize night work where possible and at the same time balancing the need to reduce traffic impacts and inconveniencing the public. So this is a map of the night work permits that have been issued by Public Works. 
The map shows that the majority of permits are concentrated in the downtown area. And the orange you see on the map show where MTA either does not allow daytime work at all or severely restricts daytime work. This is consistent with the goal to minimize construction work during traffic time in the, in the downtown area. Here's a zoomed in view of District 3. If you notice, Districts 3 and 6, where the majority of nightwear permits have been issued, along with all the orange lines of restrictions for traffic. Okay, so next, um, I wanted to go over the application process for night work permits. All applicants are required to apply at least five days in advance. A plan checker will review each application to, get, to gather the following information. What time will the work be performed? Is there an associated excavation permit for this work? Is inspection staff available to oversee the construction night work? Public Works also requires that for all capital projects, as well as the majority of new service and repair projects, a 150-foot radius notification to property owners and residents are, are sent to the about the night, night, night work permits. The night work is also required to adhere, adhere to all Blue Book requirements, or alternatively, if a waiver is granted, the applicant is required to follow all waiver requirements. The, notif the notification letter must include the company name, who is performing the work, the dates and times, when will the work occur, the location, where it will occur, and the 24-7 contact in case there are issues. So what is Public Works' role in night work? Public Works inspects and monitors the contractor and the night work that he's in performing to ensure that the public is safe and the job site is properly monitored. Between the eight hours of eight to midnight, inspectors are required to evaluate the work scope, ensure that it is the same as what has been authorized through the issuance of a permit, ensure that the job site has been properly delineated through the use of safety cones and signs, carefully monitor the sidewalk so that pedestrians can safely navigate through the project, and use appropriate lighting. Public works inspectors also ensure that there's no idling vehicles at all possible when all possible, no shouting and yelling by contractors. And in instances where the contractor needs to work past midnight, the contractor is not allowed to use loud pneumatic tools, hand tools only. Example of pneumatic tools that are not allowed include backhoes, compactors, drillers, excavators, jackhammers, loaders, and scrapers. So I wanted to give, show you a few photos now. Here's a photo of night work. You can see that the contractor is lighting the project site to ensure the safety of his workers and the surrounding site. In the background, I hopefully you can see the signs that are posted and the area is delineated with construction sign tape. Here you see the proper delineation of the project site through the use of safety cones. And here's another photo of construction workers performing an emergency repair job at night. So what happens after um, after midnight, well, after midnight, you can contact the police where um, under the police code, the police are, um, are allowed or do enforce the night noise ordinance. So here's the different phone numbers and the different locations of all the different um, police stations. And um, if you find a contractor working without a permit, you can call 311 to issue a complaint. 
So that concludes my presentation. I'm here to answer any questions you might have. Thank you, Ms. Fong. I, I did have a question on the notification. Mm -hmm. So I know you said that um, the company is required to notify um, within 150 radius. Mm -hmm. um, what does that look like? And by when do they have to do it if they only have to apply five days in advance? They do it upon the application five days in advance that gives that does give them a short amount of time. For longer capital projects, they are required a 30-day notification. The five days more for emergency or repair work where there is time to sufficiently apply for a night work permit. Um, what percentage of the permits in the downtown area are given 30 days in advance versus five days in advance? The capital projects um, encompass about 20 to 30 percent of the projects in downtown. The rest are repair or emergency work permits. So close to 80, 70, 70 to 80? About 70 percent, yes, are repair and new service or emergency repair permits. So 70 percent of the nighttime construction permits that um, DPW issues are for emergency repairs? Emergency and yes. Yes. What does that mean? Well, if we took a look at the other slide that I showed you before, um, let's go back to the map. That's not a whole lot of night permits that we're actually talking about. When you say capital projects, are you talking about San Francisco projects? So I'm sewage. talking about PG&E gas main replacement okay. projects, maybe long-term projects, projects that they've you know properly right. planned out, where they have the time to say, so "Hey, only, we're going to come out there." Only they're required to do 30 days in advance. They what about are our yes. residential and office developments. They only need to do five days in they advance. They need to do at a minimum five days. They normally do more than that, but that's the minimum, and we try to hold it to people that, to utility companies that have to do work because they have to repair a gas line mm -hmm. because there's a water break. But these um, these permits, in my understanding, they're not for emergency repairs. I mean, they're actually, they're doing long-term work. There is long-term work there, and for those long-term work, uh -huh. those long-term projects that you see on the map, well, we haven't differentiated, but the long-term projects are at a minimum of 30 day. And they, in most cases, they do well over 30 days. For example, PG&E, they send it up to three to six months. Uh -huh. I'm just saying 30 days is the minimum. Yeah, well, we're not hearing about PG&E and the yeah. PUC, although I did before in prior years. What we're hearing about are the residential and office developments mm -hmm. um, and their nighttime um, permits. Those aren't emergency. I mean, that's just part of their construction schedule. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for those projects, those are the long-term projects. We are requiring a longer, okay, more so than those 30. Projects That's do 30 require minimum, them. yes. Okay, okay, yes. so it's not just city projects. No, it's not. It's also it's, the long-term office. Yes. And so at so if they apply 30 days in advance, is it at the moment of application that they send out the notification letters? That's what our goal is, and, and I see. keep in mind them, that's a minimum. At okay. a very minimum, it's 30 right. days. For the five days is more for emergency if uh -huh. we can. And many times emergencies, they don't even have that time frame. Right. They have to do it that immediately. So um, that's our goal. Okay. And, and then for the letters... It, or for the notification, in mm -hmm. what form do you expect that to go out to residents? We um, actually expect mailers, uh, resident mailings, just little postcards okay. if possible. And uh -huh. and if it's a true emergency where they have to do it immediately, they post the you know the tollway signs with right. at, at minimum two emergency contacts. Right. I actually our our residents do appreciate that there's always a contact number um, when they get yeah. that notification. So we really appreciate the process that DPW has instituted. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. 
Um, so uh, next we do have, um, through the chair, we have um, DPH and we have June Weintraub. Good afternoon. I'm June Weintraub. I'm an epidemiologist and the acting manager of various regulatory programs in environmental health at the health department, um, including work on the noise enforcement and regulation. What I'm going to just show you in this very brief presentation, put the concept of noise into um, a health context for you and then just talk a little bit about the work that we've been doing as a city to collaborate with all of the many agencies to um, try to reach some sort of holistic view of how we should deal with these competing um, problems and issues that everybody's confronting. Um, so first of all, as I think everybody in this room recognizes, the health effects from noise are, um, there's some objective ones and subjective ones. For most San Franciscans, the uh, levels of sound that they're exposed to on a regular basis, and even if they're living right next door to a construction site, are not going to be either high enough or persistent enough to actually cause hearing damage. So you can see there on the left of the slide the hearing loss concern, and that's not, um, that's not a hard and fast number. Um, for occupational settings, about 75 decibels for an eight-hour exposure. As it is, Cal OSHA actually um, has a limit of 90 decibels um, for an eight-hour exposure. And that's so that's basically if a worker is standing and using a piece of um, equipment like a circular sander for eight hours straight. If they were doing that for eight hours and one minute, then Calosha would actually require um, some sort of additional measures. Um, NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, actually has a, a more stringent and a bit more modern um, perspective on it, and their level is 85 decibels for an eight-hour exposure. Um, so. That is to say hearing loss. We know for sure, really, that there's very few circumstances in the city where an individual or our citizenry are exposed to levels that are going to cause um, hearing damage. However, sleep disturbance is a real and objective um, measurable health effect and that in and of itself can lead to cardiovascular changes and release of stress hormones which then can cascade into other legitimate and measurable physiological responses. Now annoyance is actually a sort of medical term and it is defined by the experts in the noise and sound field 
as um, the relationship between aversion to noise and a physiological effect, such as cardiovascular or blood chemistry changes. So EPA actually has a definition of noise that is highly annoying as any noise for which the 24-hour average exceeds 55 decibels. So um, as you just heard, the levels in the city over an average are probably not ever going to exceed 55. But that doesn't make a big difference when you're talking about annoyance or sleep disturbance. If you're sleeping and for one second somebody drops a big, you know, concrete thing on the ground and you hear it fall, it wakes you up and it wakes your baby up and um, that disturbs your sleep today. Um, so there's a lot of elements in what we think about when we're trying to understand what the health effects of noise and sound are. And they, they really depend on not just the level, but the duration, and then your subjective response to it. Some people get completely annoyed and irritated if they're in an elevator and there's like, you know, little tiny quiet background music. Um, and some people don't even notice that. So. Um, I think there is clarity that in the ideal world, we don't have these, um, you know, loud disruptions at night um, that can lead to sleep disturbance and annoyance. From the health department's perspective, we are trying to change the way we talk about noise and sound in the city from this individual understanding and reception to a, a public health perspective. And that is our mission, is to protect the public health. Um, and so in part of our job in the city is to weigh the balance between public safety as a as a public health measure and, um, and the health effects of something that can cause a real issue for people on a population level. So the best we can do is sort of try to ask these three questions here. Does the noise create a negative externality inflicted on the public? And that's kind of just a, trying to be a really objective way of separating yourself, ourselves, from, um, from the noise as something subjective. Is there epidemiological evidence of a harm for which causation can be established at the population level? So that comes back to the occupational standards, what we know, and also the, the things we know about sleep disturbance. And then finally, do the health risks associated with the negative or externality outweigh the benefits for public safety or health at the population level associated with allowing or restricting a particular sound at a particular time of day? So you have here, um, sorry, the pictures are a little off, but there's an ambulance there, and, um, and that's a public safety measure. Um, it is not great if you're sleeping at night and you hear an ambulance outside. However, um, it's a public safety thing. You don't want the ambulances to be just running quickly through the streets without letting people who might be on the street know, and you want them to be able to get to their destination quickly. Um, 
you have also a picture of this was from the when they moved the earthquake houses on the top right and again you know this is something that happened during the day and they had to block off the whole street and there was like a lot of activity so I think I'm not actually familiar with what discussions went on with this particular project of how they weighed the decision whether you know it made sense to do it at night or during the day but it's a nice illustration of the many different elements that you're trying to look at here is you know who's around how many streets do you have to block off and people are disturbed during the day too so I'll just give you a quick little history of noise law in San Francisco in 1972 the Federal Noise Control Act was enacted and as sort of part of that momentum at that time that was when San Francisco's noise ordinance was first enacted there were a couple of minor changes shortly thereafter and then noise regulation actually kind of went off of everybody's radar for a while in 2008 here in San Francisco we repealed and replaced many of the sections almost the entire law and modernized it and it was a very groundbreaking effort to try to become better at how we address this balance of living in an urban environment where sound is part of the fabric of our world and the potential health effects that are associated with with loud sounds and disturbance so since 2008 a few changes have been made not many and we've been implementing the noise ordinance as you see it on in the code today and what we found is that it is a great law that has some imperfections and I know that all of you hear from your constituents that there are problems with your constituents being you know both business and residents commercial construction everybody we're all constituents the purpose of the work group was to threefold to number one just have a look at how we all were implementing the noise laws in the city to look at the noise law and try and see if there were maybe some changes that needed or could be made and then also to initiate and draft some uniform guidance and agreements on how we would all start to cooperate so you just heard from DPW about how they implement their night noise permits you're going to I think also hear from DBI about how they implement the night noise permits that come to them and then in addition there's certain types of noise that come to the health department there are certain types of noise that come to the police department and there are many that go to 311 who you will also hear from can I ask a question yes the chair so what so if this was the purpose of the noise work group what actually came out of it so what came out of it is right here what we we came up with some conclusions which are basically that with the diverse and 
and active population, proximity of homes to businesses, urban traffic, construction, San Francisco can be a loud place. We agreed that noise is a subjective quality and that sound is not necessarily high enough nor persistent enough to cause hearing damage. Um, but as far as next steps, which I think is what your question is, um, yeah, I don't think I needed a year-long work group to come up with those three statements. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, although it, um, I, I hope that you do understand, and I think you you all do. It, we we move slowly, but deliberately, and it is a lot of agencies who are named in um, not just in Article Twenty Nine, which is the part of the police code that governs noise, but their sound is mentioned throughout city code and it's very difficult to kind of tease things apart and so I really am proud of the work that that we did take seemingly long to do which was number one to um, draft right now it's in draft state a citywide guidance to the existing law and this is meant to be something that's a mutually understood technical guidance to implement the existing law so what we found was everybody has different interpretations of how they measure those differences that you heard about this five decibel difference um, what's your starting point? What's your ending point? Where are you going to measure it? We'd like to be consistent, um, and it's it's not clear within the existing code. Um, we're finalizing with 311 a matrix and citywide tracking system to so that we can get a handle um, very clearly on who is responding to um, sound complaints, when, how long it's taking them to be responded to, and um, and make sure that nothing gets lost and thus end up, you know, in your offices with a frustrated person. And then finally, considering amendments to the existing law. So principally Article 29, but there may also be other aspects there. And what we really want to do is ha understand this community level, city family level um, perspectives and reach out to stakeholders on who have many varying opinions about how we should be handling noise in the city um, and and we'd like to have it be a genuine stakeholder um, process that can move forward with and come up with a, a solution that improves on our existing law which is already pretty great um, but, you know, tries to, there's always room for improvement. I just have a couple of questions. Um, do, I know that DPH doesn't monitor nighttime construction noise activity. Do you help to train the departments on how to do noise monitoring? We have taken that on. Um, it is uh, um, something, we have a noise control officer who sits in the health department and who has made himself available to all of the departments to uh, train on how to use a sound level meter. Mm -hmm. One of the really simple changes that we'd like to make to the existing code 
is right now in the code, it requires a type one sound level meter. And that's a really expensive piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take a ton of expertise to operate that piece of equipment, um, but mostly it's just that it's expensive. Um, and we don't have a ton of them in the city. We'd like to change that to allow a type two sound level meters. Mm -hmm. And that would make the availability of enforceable measurements a mm -hmm. little bit easier. And with the primary departments that you would recommend training be SFPD, DPW, and DPH? And DBI. I, I'm sorry, DBI, yeah. that's what I meant, not DPH, I'm mm -hmm. sorry. Um, and it seems that DPW is already, um, they already have inspectors that um, do on-site monitoring of noise. So was that training that happened through DPH, they did that on their own? Not that I know of, I mean, we okay. can ask. Okay. Um, but what I do know, I mean, yeah. Okay, and do you um, have an, Do you know how many nighttime complaints have been currently reported? I do not, but and that is one of our goals with the three one one process is so that we can have some more uniform tracking so that we can actually answer that question. Okay, so we're working with three one one to update yes. their system. Um, and what improvements are we planning so we can actually collect that um, data? Well, I think that Andy Maimoni is going to explain that, so I'll leave that to him. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So we um, we do have um, Brian um, Brian from SFMTA here, as well. Thank you. And then our final presentation will be DBI. Hello, Chair Wiener and members of the committee. My name is Brian Duso with the SFMTA Sustainable Streets Division. And today, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the Blue Book. And our role at SMTA with respect to issuing permits in the roadway. <clears throat> so, my agency works with DPWBSM, with Muni, and with other city agencies when permitting work in the roadway that affects city streets, walkways, and transit routes. One of the tools that we provide is called the Blue Book. Uh, it's regulations for working in San Francisco streets. Excuse me. <clears throat> Uh, this document covers a wide range of, of guidance, rules, and regulations to allow contractors to work in city streets as well as city crews, utilities. Um, it identifies the permits required to work on city streets. It provides guidance for working on streets with special restrictions. It provides lane and sidewalk closure requirements. It depicts construction zone standards for traffic control. And it provides guidance for work that may impact transit, school zones, and bicycle routes. If contractors are not able to follow the restrictions, the rules, and regs that are placed in this document, or if it's a building construction site that needs additional space above and beyond what they already have, they will often come to MTA requesting what's called a special traffic permit. Uh, and we will look at the site, look at the conditions at that site, the hours that they're requesting it, and see if we can issue a permit to allow them to do that work. But there are many instances where we're not able to let them do everything they want to do. They would love to take a street with four lanes and reduce it by two lanes, which doesn't seem like a big deal until all the transit on that street has to be diverted or gets stuck. And we're not just talking about Muni. There's Golden Gate Transit, SAM Transit, AC Transit. There's a lot of cabs that will get stuck in there as well. In addition to all the commuters, sometimes they'll need to shut down a sidewalk to do a concrete pour or certain sets up. 
setups which could result in pedestrians having to be diverted in a way that may not work so well on paper. I mean, on paper it'll work, but in real life it doesn't work so well, especially when you're near attractors like Union Square or, excuse me again, or the uh, Trans Bay Terminal is another area where we've recently encountered difficulties with so many pedestrians coming through. So, as I said, if we can, we will issue a permit uh, to allow concrete pours, crane operations, major excavations to occur in order to avoid the impacts that we're discussing today, but we can't always do that. So there are, are four situations that I wanted to talk about briefly that come up that, that might help illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, so earlier, Lin Fong talked about the, the streets of major importance, and those are listed in Table 1 of the Blue Book, and some of them are shown in Map 1A as well. And those streets are generally restricted from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. and from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. And so if you have to work with those constraints, it could mean that you can only do a concrete pour from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., which is often too short a window for most work. So on a case-by-case -case basis, we will work with the contractor to see, is it possible for us maybe to deploy uniformed officers to assist with the concrete pour. Maybe they can override the traffic signal to provide more green time. Uh, detour routes may come into play, but for some streets, 1st Street, 10th Street, it's not going to work very well. And so in those instances, we may ask the contractor to either reduce their, their, the size of their footprint during the pour, which creates problems for them because of the nature of a concrete pour, or look at pouring on a weekend. And sometimes they'll also look at working at night, um, which brings us where we are today. A second category that we have uh, very great difficulty with are key transit facilities, cable cars, F-line. We cannot shut those down during most of the day. They shut down late at night, and so most work that needs to occur in the vicinity of those facilities typically occurs late at night. Uh, 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. is what I, what I recall. Uh, Delivery of oversized loads. So sometimes they'll need to bring in a very large piece of equipment or a temporary structure will come in of some sort, and it exceeds uh, what's called a legal load in California, and they need to get special permits from both the DOT and from MTA. And many times the DOT permit will restrict the movement of those vehicles to late at night, and likewise our permit will match that because it has to. And so as a consequence, those deliveries may show up late at night, and that would be an instance where a delivery might be occurring at an inopportune time. And the fourth one I think I've already discussed, which is long-duration activities such as concrete pours. So those are the, the conditions under which we do encounter night noise. Uh, that's, that's mostly what I wanted to talk about. Uh, I did have a graphic that I was asked to prepare. I'd be happy to project it onto GTV if possible. So I'm um, sorry the text did not show up as well as I'd hoped, but this is a, an image of a typical uh, hypothetical building site where the green square represents the, the property being built and permits within that area, those are controlled by DBI. The blue area which you see is both within the sidewalk and within the parking strip. And so BSM will issue what's called a street space permit, and that street space permit will allow the contractor to occupy the space in blue, along, but they'll have to provide a four-foot minimum path through 
that site. Now, often it'll be wider depending on the street. So, for example, Market Street, four feet might not work so well. Anything beyond that for a, for a vertical construction, for a building construction, they'll either need to get special traffic permits or additional street space in order to do that construction. So I just thought that that might be helpful to illustrate the types of permits and where each agency has a role with a vertical construction. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. I, I do want to say that I know that this part of the city where we are building a multi-use neighborhood that includes residential, that a lot of that neighborhood um, are considered streets of major importance. And so I do appreciate that SM SFMTA is looking um, even at these corridors on a case-by-case -case basis um, on behalf of, you know, just understanding the mixed-use nature of the area. So thank you. Thank you. So now uh, DBI. Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Patrick O'Reardon. I'm a Chief Building Inspector at DBI, and I'm here to present our night noise issuance policies and procedures. Construction work at night is covered under the San Francisco Municipal Code, Section 2908. The allowable working hours, as we know at this point, are from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., and I think it's important to talk about this five decibels over ambient uh, being an allowable limit for construction. So what that essentially means is that these projects can in fact do work that is within that five decibels above ambient. Now ambient of course is the normal background noise that is present at any time of the day. So that would include things such as drywall work, maybe painting, finished electrical plumbing work, those would be all categories which would fall into that 5 dB over ambient. However, as Supervisor Kim pointed out, we have all these new large projects that have recently come online, especially in, in, in the Rincon Hill Transbay portion of the city, and they are not at that point where they're going to be doing finish electrical or plumbing or painting or any of that work. So here we are, we are faced with the challenge of, and I think the word was used, balance. It, it really is about balance. We at DBI definitely understand the impact on the residents, but we also have to understand if, if it's justifiable to approve and issue one of these permits. The reasons are, are, well, what the code says is if it's less objectionable to do work at night than during normal hours for life safety, street sidewalk availability, and structural considerations. I think we've hit on a couple of those points already from the other departments in regard to the street and sidewalk availability. And, of course, I'm going to talk about the, the structural concerns. So what is DBI's criteria for approving these night noise permits. Number one would be a monolithic concrete pour. So a monolithic concrete pour is where the pour needs to be continuous. This continuity means maintaining delivery without delay and placement quickly enough so that there's no chance of that concrete setting up 
at any point during its delivery or placement. Again, that, that has to do with the structural integrity of, of a, a high-rise building. So if we see that there's a possibility of concrete trucks getting stuck in commute traffic and the concrete potentially starting to set up in the trucks, we don't want that. Because even if they pour that concrete, it, it, it may not come up to spec and they may end up jackhammering it out again and having to redo. I'm sorry, the process you're describing now, is that the current process today or is that the process that has been in place? Because I understand there's been a change recently. That hasn't been changed recently. That's, that's an, an ongoing uh, process where we allow uh, additional time for large monolithic pours. Okay. I, I had heard, or maybe I got misinformation, but I had heard that DBI recently made a change in terms of uh, stopping issuance of night work permits in this area. Is that accurate, or did I get well, that wrong? In, in the last week um, prior to this hearing, I, I think we've uh, had a meeting in the mines, as it were, and we've considered the impact on residents. And what we're striving to do here, again, is is, is balance, and, and we're trying to get the parties together. And I think this is wonderful that we're all here talking. Uh, I'm sorry, so was there a change or was there not a change? We have not issued a night noise permit since Wednesday. Since uh, today, so, so in the last five days. So last Wednesday you stopped issuing night noise permits? Uh, it, one hasn't issued since Wednesday, a night noise permit. Okay, so it's like a blanket, we're not issuing anything. Well, um, <laughs> I'm going to let our, direct, our acting director speak to the policy part of it, and, and uh, you know I can definitely speak to, to how we do our process, and but okay, we have but we have not issued since. Okay, since so this process is as of before last Wednesday. Yeah, I, I'm going to speak to up to last Wednesday. Okay, and then someone else will speak about the change. Yeah, I, I use, use the word meeting of well, the minds. I want to I want to yeah. clarify. There hasn't been a change. This is the current policy. There's been a temporary. Um, um, issuance, um, not allowing night permit as we reevaluate the current conditions yeah. and the current criteria, and we hope to come yeah. up with that very quickly. I, but I, there hasn't been a new policy put into place okay. yet. I think it's probably reasonable to suggest that this is a, a, a reset so we can evaluate um, okay. the process. And that's fine. Whether it might have been the best decision in the world, I'm just saying that that is, I think I beg to differ, I think that is a policy change even if it's not permanent, uh, if you're just saying we have certain criteria and we're now simply not issuing them at all. And I ask, and we'll get, I guess, when the acting director speaks, we can, because I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. Yeah. And so uh, we can, I guess maybe you're not the appropriate person to have this discussion with. Yeah, well, I'm going to defer to our acting okay. director on that. Okay, so you can proceed for yes. what the criteria are that were suspended as of last Wednesday. Yeah. So, and I'd just like to state uh, that, you know, that doesn't mean that permits are not going to be issued in the future, but we're, we're in a period of reset, I guess. Um, one of the other reasons for um, approving these night noise permits is uh, the delivery of large loads, sometimes restricted to nighttime hours for street use and safety, and cons safety considerations. I believe MTA has already more, more or less spoken to that. But what I would like to add is we have deliveries such as 60 and 80 foot long I-beams that are delivered to large projects that cannot uh, be delivered during the daytime hours. So if there are no night work permits being issued, how are those, how is that work supposed to happen if it can't happen 
we're reading here, so there's some work that can't feasibly be done during the day. Uh, there's some work that could have life safety impacts on pedestrians during crane erection jumping and removal. Um, the large monolithic concrete, these are things that are problematic to do during the day. So, so if you're not, if as of last Wednesday the department is no longer issuing night work permits, how is that work supposed to be done? Uh, I don't have an answer for your question, Supervisor, but I, I do see that there is uh, a need for issuance of these permits based on this criteria. Okay. And, and obviously if this is, as you call it, a reset or a delay, if it's like a one-week thing, yeah. uh, so we have quick conversations uh, and figure out the, hold on a second, figure out the criteria, that, that's one thing. But if it is a suspension for an indeterminate amount of time and we're talking about work that cannot be done during the day without extreme disruption or that will cause, as you put it here, life safety impact on pedestrians, um, that's, a, that's a different story because there's a reason why that work is not performed during the day. Uh, I don't think that this is a, a, a long-term proposition here for what is justifiable for issuance of a night noise permit. Okay. And, uh, I, and it's, I think it's not our office's understanding that this is in any way going to be a long-term prohibition. I, we are trying to work through this as quickly as possible. Um, but, you know, while um, our director is not here, he wanted to ensure that we were able to work through these processes for our residents. I agree with that uh, comment, Supervisor Kim. I, I don't expect that this is in any way a long-term well, So what, how, how long? I, I'm, I'm going to defer to okay. our acting director on that. Okay. Also. We'll hear from the acting director then. Uh, one of the other reasons, if there is a potential life safety impact for pedestrians or vehicular traffic, the work may need to take place at night when streets and sidewalks can be closed. Traffic and muni impacts uh, are other reasons for these approvals. Uh, factors we consider are exterior panel installation. Essentially, that's the panel that goes on the exterior of the building. Pedestrians may be using the sidewalk down below during the daytime hours, so it's Generally, it's a life safety consideration to allow that work to happen at night. And crane delivery, raising, lowering, and removal of uh, portions of a crane is, is also something that uh, is allowed to happen at night, and we approve permits for those reasons also. Can I um, ask a question? So um, DPW had said that they have um, strict days, that they expect the letter um, by and or the request letter by so five days for an emergency repair 30 days for kind of ongoing capital improvements when does DBI expect this request letter by the contractor or developer I'm actually um, just coming up to that on the next oh I'm slide. sorry I apologize <laughs> so um, our process for uh, appro uh, submittal and approval uh, of these uh, night noise permits um, the submittal is usually a request by email and occurs at least 72 hours prior to work, but usually it happens more in advance. Now, my understanding is that about 50% of our requests are from 7 to 14 days in advance. So um, uh, three days is an absolute minimum. And when we have the, the shortened period of outreach, we, we do occasionally reach out to building managers and HOA managers to see that they have been contacted. And uh, many of them are actually copied on emails uh, that are uh, sent out, you know, in regard to what's being proposed. Um, additionally, uh, we, we see newsletters that are put out by the um, 
the contractors, and I, I think you're probably aware of some of that that, that happens, uh, particularly in, in, in the, the Transbay area. They do put out newsletters regarding uh, two-week look mm -hmm. ahead regarding what, they, uh, what can be expected. No, both um, the terminal and the Salesforce Tower do a great job with their newsletters. When do you, um, when you say that you expect um, an outreach letter, letter to the neighbors, do you have the same kind of um, uh, circumscription? Do you expect 150 feet? Do you lay that out for the developer and contractor as DPW does? Well, with construction, it, it, it really has to do with what equipment they're using. So there's no set requirement for which neighbors they have to outreach to? No, we, we make a determination based on what equipment is being used as to what the um, expected impact would be. Uh-huh. So, and what is the range that you expect them to reach out to? Um, well, I, I would think that if they're pouring concrete and they're, you're dealing with concrete trucks, concrete pumps, there will be lighting if they're doing night work. They're probably going to at least be reaching out to, or they need to reach out to, at least that 150-foot radius also. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the request and outreach provided to us need to show where, why, with reason, and what work will occur with dates and times. So we need to see specifically um, with regard to what they're doing and the need for it along with the times and dates that are going to be performing this proposed work. Uh, outreach has to include very specific reasons to help neighbors understand why the work is at all necessary. This next slide right here shows uh, a large residential building outlined in blue surrounded by five large ongoing projects which are outlined in red and these are these red outlined projects here are, are those are projects that we issue uh, night noise permits for for time to time the five projects have different developers and contractors DBI doesn't have the ability to control their different schedules DBI does encourage these projects to conduct best communication, notification, and outreach practices to its neighbors. The department seriously considers the impact of night work on neighbors and has denied requests along with limiting the hours of impact in some cases. This next slide is, um, shows the numbers of night noise permits issued over a three-month period, July, August, and September. Um, the numbers are citywide and also uh, include the numbers that are issued in the Transbay, Rincon Hill neighborhood. Um, as the September numbers demonstrate, when the number of issued uh, permits declined by 36.5%, there are monthly fluctuations based on project schedules. And I think I'd like to mention with regard to that, too, that if you look at any of these monthly night noise issuance numbers, uh, we all understand that there's, a, there's an incredible amount of work going on at any one time in the city right now. And, you know, it's probably thousands of, of, of jobs. So this is a small number of night noise permits. 
And it to, looks like close to 50% occur in one neighborhood versus the rest of the city. Well, like you said, uh, Supervisor Kim, uh, in 2011, we had the one, you know, area of construction around the Transbay, and now we have all these mm -hmm. larger projects that are going on in the same area. In terms of jobs, you mentioned, um, I have, had heard that there have been people laid off um, as a result of the department's decision not to issue any uh, night permits. Do you, do you know how many people have been, or is it, does the department have any? I'm not even aware of that. Uh, okay. We, we've been heard, I'm sure we'll hear more about it, but we've yes. been heard that there have been layoffs yes. Yes. Of, uh, of less senior construction workers uh, due mm -hmm. to the department's, the meeting of the yeah. minds that you described, yeah. which I, I don't know what that means. I'll ask the acting director um, about not issuing these permits. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel bad that anyone has been laid off because of this, and, and our intent is to keep these projects moving forward. But I think it's also important to understand we have to listen to the concerns of the, I, the surrounding I, residents. I, I agree 100%. Yeah. And, yeah. and when you talk about hitting a, a reset button um, to make sure we have best practices, mm -hmm. good standards in place, I'm 100%. Uh, supportive of that. Mm -hmm. We need to have the best practices possible and do everything we can uh, to minimize uh, impacts because these are real people mm -hmm. with families who are trying to live their lives. And believe me, I'm with you a thousand percent on that. Um, but I also think that DBI could have been doing this work if you want, if you want to have different or better standards or bring people together to try to say how can we do this in the most thoughtful and respectful way possible. There's been all the time in the world, these projects have been underway for, they've been planning for a long time, mm -hmm. they have been in construction for a long time, mm -hmm. and so I'm just not understanding why wasn't DBI doing that, we, that work and that thought before, and why does it take an actual suspension with resulting layoffs uh, to do that? You could have been doing that work three months ago, six months ago, a year ago, and that's really my question. Why wasn't that work done before, we, we and why were, did it take a suspension of the work to do it? We were actually doing some of that work a year ago, and we have been working with contractors. We've been in, involved in meetings. We have brought contractors to our office, and we have worked out scenarios where the, the piercing, shrill sound of the backup alarm that you hear with construction equipment uh, reversing up, which is a, an OSHA requirement. Those backup alarms, in many cases, especially around the Transbay projects, have been replaced by broadband backup alarms, uh, alarms, which have a lot less impact. When we bring these contractors to us uh, down at DBI, we, we talk to them about, about things they can do to lessen the impact on their neighbors. We talk about take the generator, move it from next to the neighbor's building to the other side of your site, find a way to shroud that generator, whether it be straw bales or whatever you want to use, but lessen the impact. So we have been very much engaged in the process of dealing with a lot of these issues, and especially in regard to outreach. And that, that's that's terrific, um, and I guess I don't understand why uh, why it takes the suspension of night permits with with workers being laid off in order to complete that process. So whatever you were doing, apparently you're doing going to be doing more work now. Why couldn't that work have been done all along? I don't understand why it takes a, a, a blanket suspension resulting in layoffs. Well, I think maybe I, these questions could be 
saved for our acting director. I, I appreciate Supervisor Weiner your line of questioning. I don't uh, want to put yeah, Mr. Reardon on the uh, in a position of answering something that he did not finally decide. Uh, but I do have some questions about the process. Of yeah, and I'm happy to if you if you want to defer those questions to the acting director, happy to have them deferred. But you you were raising different points, right? Um, right. And so I'm I'm following up on that. I, I think maybe what I should say is this has been our process up to uh, Wednesday, and in all likelihood it will be our process, and it probably will be a more refined process based on the concerns of the neighbors and the needs of the contractors and achieving the balance. Because at the end of the day, this is all about, in my opinion, it's about achieving some kind of balance so that work can get done that needs to be done in the nighttime hours with as little disruption and to mitigate the impact to the utmost. Okay, so you're defending the policy but not answering my question because you want me to ask the acting director. So at this point, I'll just we'll move on. I'll ask the acting director those questions, and Supervisor Kim has some questions for you. Thank you, Chair Weiner. Um, I want to go back to the process. So D DPW outlined a pretty clear process, which I think our residents understand um, in terms of how nighttime permits are issued. And I think what I hear a lot is that um, three days is just not enough time for our residents to plan, in particular if there's going to be loud nighttime construction noise, because um, some of them are even willing to leave and go to other places. And so if these work is happening in advance, um, the, my question would be how how many days can we set this um, request letter by? Um, can it be 30 days um, as DPW does it, as these are long-term capital projects? Can it be 20 days? You know, what is the maximum number of days that we can really set um, these letters of request and by? Uh, the answer to your question is yes, we can request 30 days or 14 days or certainly more than three. Three. But mm -hmm. I think given the nature of construction with weather and wind impact and everything else, if, if even we have a 14-day noticing period and if somebody wants to pour concrete and they have their excavation ready and let's say day 13 the sky's open and it rains and their hole in the ground is, is, is full of water and then they may be unable to pour the concrete you know, on the 14th day, then do we re-notice for another 14 days or I, I'm just kind of I mean of but I, I assume three days prior to that day happening because right now you give three days notice right you know we're going to expect rain and we might then reissue um, another date right? right I mean weather is not that weather is very unpredictable here I agree um, but you know usually three five days out yes. you'll at least hear if there might be rain right, right. like for today I, I agree I agree yeah. I, I, it's the biggest, it's one of the big sources of complaints I hear from our residents is the three days that you can do it by email to DBI. Right. Um, and then also I think the question of notification to our residents, having it always be clearly delineated, having a clear rule, um, even if some of them are less um, or more than others, making it 150 feet each time, making it 300 feet mm -hmm. each time, having a level of consistency, I think is what we hear from our residents too. I'm also curious, what form of notica notification do you require contractors and developers um, to submit to our residents? Well, Does it have to be a mailed letter like DPW? Well, there are different ways of doing it. And, and to be honest- What do you require? Uh, we require to see evidence of a letter uh, of an email to the, the building, which would typically be in the case of larger buildings to a, a building manager. 
or an HOA manager for the building. And, and getting back to the newsletter, we, we expect to see evidence of newsletters being sent out when, when companies do that also. Is there a reason why we can't mandate what DPW has in what they laid out where they require a letter that goes to all the residents within 150 feet? There's really no reason why we can't do that, and, and, and we'd be very open to that suggestion. Um, it, it, it probably does create uh, a situation whereby we'd have to put a lot more resources towards it, but we'd, we'd be very accepting of that suggestion. Yeah, I think that, mm -hmm. you know, our residents have been asking for a little bit mm -hmm. more, for actually very clear consistency amongst our projects, mm -hmm. um, and they appreciate the process that DPW has put in place because it's something mm -hmm. that they easily understand. My, I, does DPI have an, um, an on-site monitor of nighttime construction noise as DPW does? Well, DBI doesn't have um, staff who, who investigate complaints at night, specifically uh, noise complaints. But we, we do have um, an emergency standby inspector who, if, if uh, our um, director agrees, we, we can maybe mandate that that inspector investigates noise complaints when, when they come in in the middle of the night. I think that would make a huge difference. I mm -hmm. think that there are nighttime construction that happens that does not disturb our residents, right. um, where, you know, really everything happens according as they're, they're laid out. But, of course, you know, every, every instant can't be consistent or perfect. Mm -hmm. And it would really help a lot if DBI had um, a staff member that was dedicated mm -hmm. um, to just doing the on-site noise monitoring as DPW has, mm -hmm. um, that our residents can call and they can come on site immediately and make sure to tell mm -hmm. the workers, hey, actually, mm -hmm. you can't do this anymore. This is what we've allowed you to do. Mm -hmm. That would make a huge difference for our residents. Right. We can definitely um, talk to our director in regard to that. And I think it's a very good idea, too, that we can have somebody go out there and actually see if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And if they're not supposed to be doing anything, that, you know, we can mm -hmm. verify that. Thank you so much. Okay. Now, DBI does provide sample letters of request and outreach to um, contractors and applicants. So... The sample letter for request is for consistency and communication. A sample of a letter of request is provided to applicants showing the necessary criteria to be included. The letter is required to be on company letterhead stating a specific need for a night noise permit. The letter must include reason, desired dates, times, and a list of equipment, including lighting that will be used. Lighting is one of the things, it's not noise, but it's an annoyance because if somebody's working in the middle of the night, they're going to have lighting. But we encourage contractors, and this is another discussion that we have with these contractors. Don't shine the light up on the adjacent building where people are sleeping. Direct it away. Direct it down towards your work. Generally place it next to that building and direct it away. That's, that's what we advise them. And that's another conversation that has been ongoing uh, more recently than, than, than before. The one um, thing that actually DPW does require that DBI doesn't is a 24-hour-7 contact. Yeah, well, is, I'm actually getting oh, to that. Oh, okay, you're getting to that. I apologize. <laughs> so our outreach letter, DBI provides a sample of the necessary evidence of outreach, again, for consistency. It needs to be distributed to all neighbors within the area of potential impact. The letter must state where, what, 
when and given adequate description of the justification and what can be expected. I think what can be expected is, is, is a, a big one in here because it's, that matters a lot to people if they're, if they're going to be woken up in the middle of the night uh, by something. They need to have known about it ahead of time. And, and if the expectation is there that they're pouring concrete, you know, at least they'll know about it. Cell phone contact information of a site supervisor who will be on site during the pro proposed work must also be provided. Okay. And we just, so you know, we do call that number from time to time to make sure there is somebody on the other end. Okay. It's, it's important for us to know that. Explanation of uh, DBI approval. An explanation as to why a, a night noise permit is or was approved is provided by DBI. The explanation may be in the form of an email, a letter, or sometimes it may be a phone conversation. The explanation generally describes the life safety structural and traffic, be it pedestrian, muni, or vehicular considerations as reasons for the approval. Noise permit approval. A request will be denied if the need for its approval cannot be justified in the request letter. Night noise, noise permits are also denied based on inadequate evidence of outreach. An applicant may be asked to resubmit a request and outreach document with justifiable and or information that may be needed. Inspectors regularly visit project sites to inform contractors of their obligation to be good neighbors especially regarding night activities. Phone calls are made to the contact number, as I just mentioned, on the outreach letter to verify that the project supervisor is available and responsive. At least two of the Rincon Hill Soma neighborhood projects have closed circuit TV capability, and the district building inspector has access via a specific website. This is the last slide, and it's an example of what a, a night noise permit looks like. The night noise permit includes a specific order number. It indicates location, the allowable work, date and times, and equipment being used. Night noise permits are issued via email as an attachment. The permit and submittal documents are stored both electronically and in hard copy format at DBI. These permits are rescinded for non-compliance with the stipulated conditions of approval. That ends my presentation. Thank you. Okay, so now next is the acting director. Good afternoon, supervisors. Dan Lowry, deputy director, acting director. Temporary. Mr. Huey's coming back, right? <laughs> uh, the question that you're asking there, uh, this is a temporary pause to review our policy and standards con concerning the issuance of these night noise permits. For, for how long? 
Uh, it's just a temporary, it's hopefully short term. We're trying to get the recommendations from the Board of Supervisors here. From this meeting here, we're going to go back and we're going to relook at our policy and. Uh, I'm sorry, but for, but for you say temporary, what is that? Temporary can mean a lot of things. How long? Or a range? Or an approximation? Well, you have to look at the policy. It's going to be short term. Because uh, what, what we know mean? the contractors, uh, we don't want to delay their schedules. We also know that uh, all the residents are affected by the night noise, are very concerned. We've been working with working groups. We've been working with the supervisor's office. We're trying to come up with a solution that will satisfy both parties. I, I understand, and I, I am very supportive of, uh, the, of the department working with, the, with residents, with Supervisor Kim, with uh, whoever, with, I, I presume with the contractors, with everyone to try to come up with um, the absolute best possible way of doing night work. Because as I said at the beginning, no one night, likes night work. It would be in a perfect world we would have no night work. Uh, but we also know, as DBI has indicated, that there are sometimes reasons why night work has to happen. Uh, and one of your criteria is if doing night work during the day would close a muni line or create uh, hazards for pedestrians um, or, uh, uh, or other problems, then the work would be pr normally done uh, at night. And so, uh, so the question is, when you say short-term and temporary, do you have any sense of how long uh, this, uh, effectively, it's a moratorium on issuing night permits. How long that moratorium is going to last? It's not really a moratorium. It's just a temporary pause while we're reviewing our policy, and we hope to uh, right. activate it soon. I wanna... well, you say it's not a moratorium, but right now, is the Department of Building Inspection issuing any of these night permits? Uh, we would issue night noise permits if it was a life safety issue. I mean, if it was an imminent hazard. If, uh, you know, if, if say there was a monolithic pour that had to be poured and couldn't be stopped, we would look at these as a case-by-case basis to say uh, we, we totally stopped, we haven't totally stopped, we're just uh, uh, pausing to review and, and to look at the, the area. The area of concern is, is Jane Kim's area, and uh, we, like you said, there's just an enormous amount of construction there. We're just trying to figure out a process that we could make it sure. for both parties to move forward here. So uh, first of all, I'm all in favor of finding yep. a process to make sure that night work is as least disruptive, that's a, if that's the right grammar, as least disruptive as possible. I'm 100% in favor of that. I, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, I understand that this is in Supervisor Kim's district. This project area is absolutely of citywide concern. Uh, and, and we are ultimately one city, and this, is, this project area is integral to the future of a lot of things in our city, including our economy. Um, we all, residents of all of our districts, go to this area, and when there's disruption in transportation during the day, uh, or, or whatever it might be, that affects everyone. So this is a citywide uh, uh, issue. Um, but I also, um, uh, you know, I'm going to ask the question I asked to the previous speaker. Um, if there are issues uh, in terms of needing to, to tweak or improve best practices um, around night work, that's a, that's a terrific thing to think about, and I would applaud the department for trying to reduce disruptions or unnecessary disruptions for neighbors, because I know firsthand it is a real challenge to live in a construction zone at night, and, and it, it can be awful. And so I'm all in favor of the department uh, making necessary changes to minimize impacts. 
My question is, why didn't the department do that, again, three months, six months, nine months, a year ago, this construction's been going on for a while. Why does it take actually stopping the issuance of night permits, a pause, as you put it, which, uh, as I understand it, has caused layoffs, has caused disruption in projects. Why does it take doing that instead of just having done it all along when the department, I think, should have been doing this? Why does it take a pause to do that? Uh, this is what I was told to do, to give a temporary pause. Who, uh, who told you to do uh, that? The, I'm working with the director. He's on vacation right now, and we just uh, we decided to do a temporary pause and review the policy, and hopefully come up with a solution very soon. Who, it's who, not stopping all night noise permits. It's just a pause in, in a major affected areas, and if there's a life safety or an imminent hazard, well, it's, caused, be night noise it, it's, caused, it's caused layoffs, so it's a real issue. But who did uh, who did Director Huey work with uh, in order to make the decision to take this? pause, as you call it, in night permits? Because I've heard from a number of people that they were not involved uh, in that process and that it was simply announced. So who did Director Huey work with in making that decision? It's a rather significant decision. Yeah, I'm not sure who he worked with. Uh, this is what uh, was agreed upon that we would do. Okay, so you don't, did Mr. Huey just tell you to, to do this or do you have any idea who was involved in that decision? It was decision? in a conversation that he told me. Uh, but did he, do you have any idea uh, as a department representative here today, who was involved in that decision to 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 implement this this pause, as you call it? Do you, do you know who was involved? Uh, the director and I. He discussed to me, and and that's uh, that's all I know. That's okay. The conversation I had with the director. And so you don't know who else, other departments, offices, who who was involved in making that decision? Um, no. Did, did the department consult with, before making that decision, with, uh, with anyone who's actually doing the work out in this area? Uh, we've been working with uh, all the contractors. We've been working with the, the work groups. Uh, we have a senior inspectors working with Supervisor Z's group. We're working with a working group in a metropolitan. We're trying to look. We're trying to wait for this meeting here. To, to hear your recommendations, to hear the recommendations of the contractors, to hear the recommendations of the residents here. Why, why so we could, we could review our policy and change our policy so it would be more satisfactory to everyone. But, but what I'm asking is why wouldn't the Department of Building Inspection have at, solicited and received those recommendations before simply putting in place this, this pause, or as you call it, of night permits? And, I, and I've actually someone forwarded me an email um, from Mr. Reardon, the chief building inspector, to a bunch of people, presumably departmental people as well as uh, contractors, saying, and I'm going to read it all, there has been a change in policy regarding the issuance of night noise permits. No more permits for the downtown area uh, relating to night noise construction activities will be approved by DBI at this time, period, regards Patrick or Reardon. Uh, that's a pretty uh, definitive email, and it's, that, it, it sound, when you read it, it's like an email that comes... Uh, a little bit out of the blue uh, for some people, and so I've been told, and it's resulted in layoffs. And so why, why didn't the department solicit the feedback and do that work before resorting to simply turning off the night noise permits? Uh, there is no change of policy as of this time. Well, this says there's a okay. change in policy. Okay. And all I'm, we're doing reading, is we're I'm temporary pausing it. We're pausing the night noise process just because uh, of a lot, a lot of complaints from the, the neighbors. Yeah, and I'm glad... And, uh, we're, we're trying to work effectively with the contractors and with the, the residents 
and, and to you get should, a solution here. And I totally agree. You should be we should all you should be responsive to the needs of the neighbors in terms of mitigating this noise, and should be working with the neighbors and the contractors and Supervisor Kim and 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 everyone else. Uh, but the question is, why wasn't that done? before as opposed to simply issuing this email which says there has been a policy change saying there will be no more permits. It seems to me this work could have been done months and months ago as opposed to just shutting off these permits. That's a big deal. Uh, you know, We're aware of it's a big deal. Yeah, you know, we, we try to work with, with all these uh, for the last year. We've been working with working groups. We've worked with the supervisors. We've worked with these contractors on these night noise permits. And we're also doing outreach with the neighboring people to try to get a solution for both the contractors working and for the neighboring property. And, and right now, you just, you just don't know how long this pause uh, is going to last? Um, it's, it's going to last short term, very short. We're just going to get the recommendations from the board here and, and, and get a group of us together here to, to come up with uh, uh, some new standards and policy procedures that would probably change to help yeah. the... Yeah. And having been involved in uh, a lot of working groups in this city and changing policies and standards and procedures, in my experience, that doesn't tend to happen quickly because we are a very, uh, in San Francisco, we do things in a very methodical, thoughtful, deliberative way, seeking a lot of input from a lot of people. Um, so if you're telling me it's going to be super fast, days or, or, or weeks, and this is all going to be put together, that's one thing. Um, but in my experience, that's not how things work uh, in, in the system that we have in San Francisco. It tends to take time. And so is it possible that this pause will last for a period of months? Could it last three, four, five, six months? No, it won't. Okay. Will it last uh, as long as a month? Uh, no, it won't. So you think less than a month and then this pause will be over? I, I'm hoping it will be soon. I, like I said, we're going to review our policy. And uh, night noise permits haven't been stop-stopped. Like I said, we're still issuing night noise permits for life safety and for uh, crane erection. If a crane has to do an erection, there is night noise permits. But we're just trying to do a temporary pause to review the standards. Okay. Supervisor Kim. Thank you, Supervisor Weiner, and I, I do want to appreciate you being here today. Um, and I, I, do, I think it's a little unfair to put all of these questions on, on you because our director, Tom Huey, is not here today. Um, but my understanding of the decision that we made, that of which it is under his full authority to do so without con consulting with anyone, um, is because he wanted to make sure that there were not um, any issuances given that did not have to be given um, in our neighborhood while he was gone and that were mistakes were made um, that our residents would push back on um, that he would be accountable to our residents for um, because he was out of town. Um, so that is my understanding from my conversation with Director Huey. It is not my understanding that he needs to consult with any department or anyone regarding his decision, um, but he wanted to make sure that if any decisions were made while he was gone, um, that he would be held accountable to by our residents, um, that he, wanted, he would want to be 100 percent certain that those permits were issued because they had to be issued. Um, so I imagine that this will be very temporary, um, that we're going to work this out in maybe two weeks or so. Um, I do think that, you know, 
the reset button, while we did not ask for it, um, has been helpful because it's actually getting people really to the table. Um, we've had a lot of conversations over the last couple of months, and I think our residents are frustrated with the pace um, that it's taken to actually get some real um, solutions and real outcomes um, to occur for our neighborhood. And, and by the way, I mean, no one else on the board has to listen to the complaints that I do, and I should just clarify that I do represent this district. Um, and when I hear from pregnant mothers and young kids that can't sleep at night, I am accountable to those residents. And I, I just think that we really have to make sure that that frame stays in the story. We support development. We support growth. It has to happen in a balanced way because whether we like it or not, we put residents in these neighborhoods before all of this construction took place. And we absolutely have to make sure that we have a neighborhood that is livable for them. And I think the questions that we hear a lot from our residents, does it have to start at 5 in the morning? Does it have to start at 6 in the morning? Can it start at 7 in the morning? I mean, they're not even asking for anything that I consider that unreasonable. Can more work happen between 4 to 6 p.m. by 8 p.m.? Um, but I think just the consistency um, that we're seeing, and you know, I'll just read some of the numbers that we had in July. Um, 14 out of 23 workday weeks, there was nighttime construction noise. Um, in August, 16 out of the total 21 workday weeks, 76% um, there were work, day, uh, work permits. And of course, on the weekends as well, which I think is just really the cherry uh, on top of all of that, um, is that you can't even sleep on the weekends. Um, so that's, that's just some of what we've heard. That being said, um, our residents are really reasonable. They get it. They know that this is going to continue on. They just want a really explicit policy put in place by DBI. Um, we're really hoping that this pause will allow DBI to be able to create that process in a very short period. Um, the reason why we had DPW present is because we think that they have um, a fairly clear process that our residents are able to follow that we're hoping to mirror. And we really want to push on when is it really um, a life safety threat to pedestrians? When does it really have to be 24 hours? We know that there are cases that it has to be, but we really want to make sure that those are the only instances in which we're giving nighttime construction noise permits. And I think our residents are not convinced that all of the permits that we give, and sometimes, you know, like I said, 60% of the work night weeks, it doesn't always feel like it's um, necessary um, or a life safety hazard. So I think we want to flesh all of those things out um, in that time period. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so actually, that completes our presentations at this time. I know that we have a lot of people here to speak for public comment. Colleagues, I don't know if you have any comments before that. Yeah. Uh, so we'll proceed to public comment now. And I, I think it is, uh, I, I will say, I was just direct to the Department of Building Inspection um, that when something as significant as this happens and, and, you know, respectfully, and I know, you know, you get thrown into the frying pan because Director Huey is not in town, uh, but when the department comes forward and every person who uh, comes forward says, I can't explain, you know, what the process was for, for why this decision was made, uh, that's uh, very uh, challenging because we all have a responsibility to ferret that kind of information out. And when I have an email from the chief building inspector saying no more permits for the downtown area relating to night noise construction activities will be approved by DBI at this time and stating that it is a policy change and the department is unable to explain how this policy change happened, who was involved in it, who wasn't involved in it, um, I, I think that's a real 
that's a real problem. We all have the same goal. We all want to minimize disruption for the lives of the people who are having uh, to deal uh, with this night noise. Um, that we all have exactly the same uh, goal. Uh, but I do uh, think that there is a real concern uh, when you have a department that could have been doing this all along. For all the many, many months that this night noise has been happening, it could have been resolved six months ago, nine months ago, and it shouldn't take a shutdown of effectively. And we see, we see in this email no more permits, and now we hear, well, maybe there are some life safety situations where they, where they are being issued. We're hearing conflicting things. It shouldn't take that kind of dramatic change to, in order for the department to institute uh, new guidelines. Um, so I'm going to just express my frustration that DBI um, wasn't able to provide uh, more information today in terms of how, uh, how this happened. Uh, so with that, we will open it up for public comment. Public comment will be two minutes. Yes, sir. Um, I'm gonna, no, sir, sir, please oh. ste step back. I haven't oh. called any names yet for public comment. I'm going to call the cards I have. Uh, um, Sean uh, Sherburn, Jim Lazarus. Charlie Lavery, uh, Chuck Wright, Ramon Hernandez, Andy Ball, and Mike Terrio. Those are all the cards I have. Um, if anyone else wants to fill out a card, there are blue cards here up front. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Thank you for holding this hearing today. Jim Lazarus, San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. Uh, obviously, this is a difficult issue for district supervisors for residents and for contractors and their employees. We urge you to request the department to convene the real parties in interest, the neighbors, the contractors, the project developers, and bring them together. That should have been, and that has not been done to my knowledge, and it should have been done before last Wednesday's fiat from the director of the department. This has caused uh, projects to come to a halt. It will continue to cause projects to be delayed. Uh, when it comes to life safety or major construction issues, concrete pours, as, as was mentioned, there was a list of present in that presentation from the Department of Building Inspection of the need for nighttime work. Now, that sh work should be done pursuant to best practices. And we think that the department with DPW, the mayor's office, and others can develop a checklist of best practices that contractors will live by in order to get these projects done on time, on budget, and safely. So we urge you to focus on that. We urge you to ask the department to reconsider the current apparent outright ban on the issuance of these important permits to keep these projects going. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, uh, Chair Wiener, Supervisor Kim, Supervisor Cohen. Um, my name is Charlie Lavey. I'm with the Operating Engineers Union. Uh, the denial of the night work permits has immediate and significant negative impacts to our members. Crane operators, concrete pump operators, materials inspectors, surveyors and mechanics will sit at home as a result. I just came from one of our cement producers down on uh, Amador uh, off Isles Creek. Uh, they have five to six operating engineers uh, working on any, on any shift uh, running that plant. Uh, those operators will be sitting at home uh, if the denial of the uh, work permits continues. Um, 
uh, the, the, the night work permits are often scheduled for safety reasons, and I include traffic in safety. Um, two months ago, a senior was killed in Chinatown by a cement truck from that same producer. Uh, the denial of the night work permits will just push those trucks onto the city streets during daylight hours, uh, increasing the risk to pedestrians. You know, the processes and protocols currently in place, uh, both the work processes uh, and the permitting processes have evolved over the years with the input of the government, uh, businesses, labor, and community, always with safety and minimizing disruption uh, as the main goal. Um, I think that uh, you know, any action that comes out of this should be uh, an action and not a reaction, and that uh, I'd be happy to participate in, in the process. Thank you. Can I ask a question to the Chair? Yes, I'll recognize you, Supervisor Kim. Thank you, Chair Wiener. Um, you had mentioned a, a, a cement truck that had killed a senior in Chinatown. Yeah. Aren't there other procedures and education that can take place so that trucks aren't hitting seniors because they have to drive in the daytime? is the only way to prevent pedestrians being hit by trucks to allow them to drive at night? Uh, no, I don't believe that's true, but I think okay. by, by pushing cement trucks onto the road, we're obviously increasing that risk. I mean, I would hope that, because there are a lot of trucks on our road during the day, that no matter how many trucks are on the road, that they wouldn't be hitting any of our residents, and that this is not the reason for that to occur. I think it just increases the probability by pushing more trucks while right. pedestrians are on the street during daylight when there aren't, they aren't on the street at night. We already have a lot of trucks in the downtown area during the day, so I really hope that that, by the fact that we have a lot of trucks out, that you're not stating that that is why people are getting hit on our streets. And, I, and that our drivers are being educated to drive safely at all times, regardless of the numbers of trucks that are out. Absolutely. I think that's an issue that should be addressed, too. Yeah. Also, there was a point made earlier by my colleague that um, layoffs have been made. I am really stunned to hear that. I have not heard that before. Um, I know that the suspension only occurred starting Wednesday, and I, I assume that that does not mean for the permits that were already issued. So right. what layoffs well, would have occurred? Well, any time a construction project is stopped, those... But they're not stopped. They're still going well, on during it, the day. Well, uh, it, yeah, we work out of hiring halls. When work stops and you are told there's no work for you today, you are you are laid off at that point. Okay, but yeah. that happens, I assume, on any given day. It can. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so there are people that have not been hired for additional work, even though there is the most construction activity that we've had in San Francisco's history since the 1906 earthquake. Well, as I say, if if a work, if a job is suspended for any reason, then those individuals are not working. Right, but we have way more workers, I assume, working in San Francisco in the construction and building trades than we ever had um, in our history. Well, certainly, so we're talking certainly more about than a, in the last few years. Yeah, so I'm hoping we're talking about a very small number of people um, that may not be working temporarily but are working other shifts, may not be working as many hours. I assume that is what that's, we're speaking That's correct. Of. Okay, yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And I will, uh, I will say, and I, and I assume Mr. Terrio will address this, when I... When I talk to construction trade unions now, there are uh, is not the case that that every union worker is is somehow fully employed. I'm sure Mr. Terrio will uh, will address that uh, that issue. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Thank you, Supervisor So thank him. So I don't actually. I didn't. I, I didn't. I don't think oh. I called your name. Oh. And so if you, you, sh you can fill out a blue card. If you don't want to fill one out, then you can speak after the blue cards oh. that we've called. Okay? Thank you. Mr. Terrio. 
Supervisors Michael Terrio, San Francisco Building and Construction Trades Council. I appreciate uh, Supervisors Kim support, Kim's support for our work and her reiteration of that uh, this afternoon. Um, it is the case that uh, our folks are the ones who are most immediately affected by a categorical um, pause, if you will, in the issuance of uh, night noise permits. And uh, yes, um, there is good work right now, and a lot of our folks are working. But if you are working a swing or a graveyard shift, particularly on some of these projects that are just coming out of the ground, where it's not drywall work, but it is concrete work uh, and rigging work, um, then you will be immediately affected by this. Uh, and we've heard, actually, Charlie, what Charlie didn't tell you was that CMEX was laying people off on the, on the uh, swing and graveyard shifts because of this. Um, and um, so people who are gradually clawing themselves out of the hole into which four years of recession uh, and un unemployment or underemployment put them uh, are now having to go back to the halls and look for more work or to sit home waiting for a contractor to call them back to work. Um, and that process, um, that delay that you hear of in their work is not necessarily linear. Uh, it, it, can, it can, in fact, be geometric in its effects. Uh, that is, for example, if you had a concrete pump that was scheduled uh, for a particular pour on a particular day, the con contractor obtained that from a subcontractor. That uh, concrete pump has other destinations on other days, and it could be booked for days and weeks to come so that the pour might, in fact, be delayed more than a few days, but a couple, of, a couple or a few weeks. That has ripple effects all the way down the line in the construction of the project and on the employment of our members. Um, so if, there, if this is, uh, in fact, a... Uh, a temporary pause. We ask that it be as temporary as possible uh, and uh, that uh, you uh, uh, come to a quick solution or at least a quick process by which we can quickly return to work. Thank you. Mr. Terry, I have a yes. question for you. So um, we understand from the Department of Building Inspection that they're going to be or they have or they will be convening a stakeholder group uh, to come up with best practices or improvements so that we can minimize uh, night work disruption, which I know you agree with. We all agree with that that needs, is a good goal. Uh, uh, certainly, we all value our sleep just as the residents yes, do. Yes, yes. <laughs> sleep is important for everyone. Yeah. Um, and uh, so be, before this, uh, um, and I read this email about this, quote, change in policy, uh, no more permits for downtown area for night noise construction activities will be approved by DBI at this time. Um, did, were you aware of this? change before that, uh, before this communication was issued? I first heard about it when the email was forwarded to me on Friday. Okay, on Friday. And um, was there any effort by DBI to convene a working group? Uh, I sound like a broken record already, but I don't know, three months or six months ago or nine months or a year to try to say, hey, we have these challenges because we're, we're, we're really causing problems for these neighbors. Let's talk about how to do it, as opposed to just all of a sudden announcing that the permits are being suspended, and now let's figure it out. I'm completely unaware of any such effort. Okay. Um, okay, thank you. Thank you. Secretary. Next speaker. Uh, you can go, as long as I called your name, you can come up. It doesn't have to be in the exact order. Um, hi, I'm Tad Bogdan, and I'm the vice president of the Metropolitan Association. And I'd like to thank uh, Jane Kim for her support for the residents and for both of you for listening to this issue. First of all, um, most of us are very much in favor of development. In fact, I moved into the Metropolitan 10 years ago. It was the blue building that you saw surrounded by all of the red construction going on. 
And one of the reasons I moved in was because of looking forward to the development of the area. So we're definitely pro-development. We want it to happen as quickly as possible. And also we want to, uh, we would, we don't want it to extend. In fact, your comment earlier about if we don't have as many night work, as much night work going on, it's going to be longer projects. And that might affect the people that work during the day. I, for one, am a con consultant, business consultant that works in my unit. So it, I am perfectly willing to sacrifice noise during the day to make sure that we take care of the health and welfare of our residents. I'd like to submit to uh, the two of you, I think Jane has a copy already, of some testimonials from the, uh, the residents, including the, uh, the issue with the pregnant woman, uh, people losing sleep, not being able to work effectively. And so we have issues like that. We've also got situations, you know, we, we definitely don't want people to be laid off. And I appreciate your comments, uh, Supervisor Kim, about things being delayed. I personally work construction to go through college. So I know that, you know, the importance of deadlines of doing concrete pours. But uh, I would uh, say that it's probably very rare that any jobs have been eliminated. In fact, even if it's nighttime work, uh, the, the concrete factory that's working around the clock, you mentioned before that most people, or no, one of the uh, developers, I think, mentioned that most people don't want to work nights and evenings. Well, this basically, that same work has to be done. It just might be delayed. And we do appreciate the DBI's support in this. In fact, one of the reasons why this escalated to this point was that we had situations where, for instance, the developer told us in a meeting, we appreciate it. They are sitting down and meeting, working. And I'll ask you to continue. So since the time went up, but I'd like, to, I'd like to hear the rest of what you have to say. Thank you very much. Uh, in a meeting that uh, there was uh, one poor that started early in the morning that could have been contained in the allowable, allowable hours, but the reason it was, was uh, the night permit was requested was because of working because of a Giants game. That could have been planned around. In fact, the comment about the planning ahead, the developers are professional building planners, and they've been working this three, six, and 12 months in advance to, uh, to plan their timing. And what we would like for, is for them to plan accordingly. Can, so, can, I, can I ask you, um, uh, just similar to what I had asked uh, Mr. Terrio before, um, we're, we're hearing from DBI that they want this uh, pause in, so that they yes. can come up with, you know, whatever you want to call it, best practices, improvements mm -hmm. to try to be, and just to be clear, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, we all want to, uh, reduce the disruption to, to you and your yes. neighbors uh, because it can be incredibly awful uh, to have to deal with um, excessive uh, night noise. Uh, and, and, um, but, and the question I've been, I've been mm -hmm. asking and so far not gotten any answer to <clears throat> is why was this not done before? Why does it take a pause? Why weren't they doing this six months or a year ago? Um, this could have been done a long time ago, which would have probably made you and your neighbors sleep a little easier over time. Uh, and so was there, um, was there any effort, to your knowledge, by DBI to try to bring people together months and months ago to say, let's try to resolve this and improve the practices? Well, I mean, one point, and by, by the way, I would like to finish with just a set of three requests. Yeah. So when, when, sure. before my time runs out. But I would suspect that the reason why it wasn't raised before is that the issue hadn't escalated. It's really in the last couple of months that we've had all of the construction noise start. And uh, DBI and uh, Jane Kim's office and the other departments and the builders actually have agreed to sit down to try to work out best practices with us. We've had uh, 
a meeting, I think two meetings so far. There's another meeting that's planned for Wednesday. So mm -hmm. definitely we are trying to work this out. We are looking for a balance. We do appreciate that some work has to take place in longer hours than are allowable. We just want to try to minimize that. We want to, what we would like to request is that instead of it being 76% uh, percent of a work week, you know, nighttime of days in a work week, uh, for it to be reduced to 10% through more effective planning. We definitely like the idea of having a 30-day notice and even a two-week notice we could live with. So if we could have a two-week notice to the residents of any night work that's not, uh, you know, emergency, of course, and repair, then we'd be very happy with that as well. And um, so in, in really in to limit to critical construction, you know, like the example that I gave about the Giants game, the Giants schedule has been out for, what, 6, 9, 12 months? And there are going to be delays based on weather, based on other things, but these are things that can be planned around. And so that's our request, is that we continue working constructively, but the 30 days notice, two weeks, or at least two weeks notice would, would help a lot, and reduce it to 10%, coordinate between all the buildings. If it was one building, that probably would be easy, and that's all that would be needed. So it's really the effect of coordination between all of the contractors. And by the way, there are, I think, three more buildings that are going to be going, in, going to be surrounding us over the next couple of years as well. So we're looking for this. How do we solve this for the future? Sure. And I appreciate that you guys are really participating in a constructive way. Great. So thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Next speaker. I'll follow my cohort, uh, supervisors, uh, Wiener, uh, Kim, and Cohen. My name is Bill Janicki, and I'm the uh, new, newly minted uh, member of the Board of Directors of the Metropolitan and its CFO. I'm a refugee from New York State, and I can tell you how pleased we are with the response of Supervisor Kim and her people compared to what goes on in Albany, which is generally considered to be the most dysfunctional government in the United States. So thank you for your, your help and your uh, willing to listen to our case. Uh, we've described our angst from the uh, off-hours construction noises. Uh, we've had 50 people submit written um, descriptions of what they've gone through. Uh, the uh, loud construction noises uh, occur as early as 1 a.m. and run through uh, 5 a.m. So it's not just uh, late evening and uh, mid-morning. It's throughout the night, those sleeping hours. Uh, and we have been told by some of the developers that this is likely to last for four years. And that touches on the point just made about additional buildings going up. We uh, in the Metropolitan are literally surrounded by cranes. Uh, and the construction is... Uh, now topping off at about 60 stories, 50 stories, 60 stories. With a shrimp on the block, we're only uh, 30 stories. So we get this tremendous uh, swell, groundswell of uh, noise and, uh, and problems for us. We want to be reasonable. Uh, we are willing to compromise. Uh, we're for a balanced response. We know we need to uh, add buildings, residents, and, and uh, commercial. And we are all for the best practices that have been mentioned before. So uh, thank you for that. One last point. Uh, somebody uh, said we should uh, call upon the police, 311. Yeah. I, no result. 
I hear you. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Next speaker. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Chuck Wright, and I'm with uh, Tishman Spire. Um, indeed, right now in San Francisco, there is unprecedented demand for office buildings, residential housing, uh, infrastructure, so on and so forth. Um, we as developers and the building community are doing everything we can to respond to that demand and do it as quickly as possible. As a developer, believe me, we push these guys <laughs> as hard as we can to get these projects done as quickly as we can. However, they are very, very challenging, complex, inner city, urban sites. And every single one of these sites have got very, very technical and complex issues. We talk a lot about, you know, a, 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 an additional uh, concrete pour or a crane erection or something like that. Every one of these are very complex, highly planned operations, and every one of them are very hazardous. Concrete pours. There could be a hundred concrete trucks lined up throughout the night. Crane erections. You're raising a crane um, with hydraulics. W when you join these type of complex operations with the public, it increases the danger tenfold. And, and we were talking about if there were um, things that were done three months, six months, nine months in advance, yes. Each site, each major site, has got a very rigid, complex group of regulations that they use before they even request these, these uh, type of night noise permits. Um, Trade-offs. In my opinion, and I would say our industry's opinion, we, while we really respect and do commensurate with a lot of the people in San Francisco, we place safety ahead of inconvenience. And these are very hazardous and, and dangerous operations. That's why we schedule them at night. Logistics, cranes, deliveries, work in the street, they're all difficult, complex operations. Best practices? The regulations are there. I mean, the example of the Giants game, that is so highly unusual. We don't take this lightly. We do our best to be incredibly discretionary about what we request. We want to be safe. We want to protect the people of San Francisco. We want to protect our workers. The families that these guys go home to, we want to protect them as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. And before we get to the next speaker, I got a few more cards. Just want to call out those names: uh, Peter Reed, uh, Bill Janicki, Tad Bogdan, uh, Dave Osgood, uh, and Alice Rogers. Oh, my! Sorry, I'm, my apologies. Thank you very much, supervisors. Uh, my name is Peter Reed. I work for Land Lease Construction. Um, we're currently constructing the 201 Forsum job down near the temporary transbay um, terminal. Um, the first thing I want to say is that, you know, as a general contractor, you know, we're going to be here for a long time. We want to be responsible, good citizens in the area. We're not out to cause trouble and want to do the right thing for the community. 
Um, I think as Chuck said, that the, these projects have a lot of pre-plan that goes into them. Um, you know, scheduling the work, scheduling the crews, making sure it's going to happen at the right times. Um, and what we really need is consistent rules so that we can pre-plan, we can think these things through ahead of time. Um, we actually plan to install a sewer line across Folsom Street tonight. Um, clearly, it's, we don't want to do that during the day. It's you know, very disruptive. And so, you know, we are forced to do it at night. Um, we actually have crews that would have been working tonight. Um, they're actually physically sitting at home. So there's probably, you know, 10, 12, 15 guys that were going to be getting a wage today that aren't going to be getting a wage. So I just want to put a real face on, uh, on what's happening. Okay. Thank you very much. So there are, there are people who would have been working who are not working? That's correct, yes. Okay, thank you, because that question was raised before. Thank you. Next speaker, Ms. Rogers. Alice Rogers, um, South Beach Rincon Neighborhood um, Bay Neighborhood Association, and I'm here, and I'm here really um, to support um, this very, and I hope very short-term hiatus. Um, while I have not been on the um, task force of the neighborhood who are working directly on this issue, I have sat in on meetings um, as long ago as three months ago, where. Um, any number of these department heads were around the table. So, so collaboration on this issue has been ongoing. Um, I'm sorry that it's come to a head, but I think that there really um, has, has come a critical mass um, that needs just a temporary stop. Um, our neighborhoods have been dealing with a lot of um, quality of life issues, and um, with the cooperation of our supervisor and really all other um, departments throughout the city, we've had an amazing success rate of being able to negotiate working um, solutions so that everybody has a win-win situation. I'm certain that you can do it. I'm certain it's extremely complex, um, but I think it can be done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment on item number five? Please come forward. Anyone who wants to comment, please come forward. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Andy Schreck with Suffolk Construction. I'm managing the 340 Fremont project. And um, yeah, we've, um, we're going to be there for a while, a couple more years. And, you know, we've uh, turned in a few night noise permits. Two of them have been for a mat foundation, uh, which needs to be a monolithic pour. Our first one uh, was ultimately approved. The second one was rejected, and we had to work with DBI um, to uh, start that pour at a later date. And it was not an ideal thing. There was a lot of concerns with uh, a cold joint in that pour, but fortunately we did pull it off. But there is... A always that chance that it may not happen due to the uh, concrete delivery trucks in an efficient manner because of the Giants game. It's very tough to a construction project to schedule uh, your activities around a Giants game. Unfortunately, we tried to do it the week before. We couldn't get mud. There are resource uh, constraints out there to where we had to back it up and, and wait for the following week. So it's always a challenge to balance that act. Um, with regards to the night noise permits, yes, we're always trying to reduce the impact to the overall uh, community. Uh, my heartstrings go out to the pregnant uh, mom. I uh, I've have three daughters myself. I know what my, my wife goes through and their, their daughters, but I think you need to look at it also as 
you know, um, the others that are impacted. I think you have to look at it as a, as a net benefit to the, com the community. If it's a traffic-related issue, if it's a safety issue or anything like that. Um, so we've done our outreach to um, the Metropolitan and the rest of the adjacent neighbors. And we actually have established, I think you may have heard, a night noise committee um, with the rest of the general contractors and developers team. So we meet every two weeks and then we report once a month at the Metropolitan. So I think we have some really good practices in place and we continue to do that. Um, what was really disheartening is to actually receive the notification of the, of the quote-unquote policy change. And so um, we, we'd like to, you know, implore you to... And that, that, so of the, the notification you received of the policy uh, change, and as you can probably tell from this hearing, um, the, you know, I think the disagreement here, or whatever you want to call it, is not really about the need to uh, try to minimize night noise impacts, but about the process that happened here. Uh, and so before uh, receiving the notification that the night noise permit pause or moratorium or uh, no more permits before that notification was issued by DBI. Is that the first you heard of it? Yes, it was. Was there any outreach beforehand saying, hey, if we can't resolve this, we're going to have to do this? Uh, we've had multiple meetings. We've been working with DBI. We've been working with the Metropolitan. Uh, they seem to be the, the biggest concern. So we've had great communication, great strides, which is really just disheartening uh, because I think we've made a real good impact on communicating, try to find that, that, uh, that middle ground that we're all trying to do, and we're going to continue doing that. But did DBI talk about the possibility of a moratorium before no, issuing that? that's my knowledge. So that was, uh, for, from your perspective, sort of out of the blue? Yes, although DBI has been very good to, to work yeah. with. The Metropolitan has listened to our concerns. We've been listening to their concerns, and we've been trying to find some yeah. middle ground. So in, in the last two and a half months that we've been meeting with uh, uh, between the general contractors and developers, there's about six of us that meet every two weeks. We've drastically, I think, from my opinion, reduced the night noise permits in that surrounding area. Okay. Thank you. Next speaker. Hi, um, <clears throat> Supervisors Dave Osgood from Rincon Point area. Um, I want to second a point that I think you've made already that there definitely needs to be more consistent uh, rules and practices in place. Um, a common problem we have is with these cranes that show up. I think we've gone through, th through these uh, three or four times in our neighborhood. Um, where these cranes are set up, they're, they're 20 to 30 stories tall. And it's kind of the same problem. They show up, DPW, I guess it is, closes the streets for the entire weekend, Friday night through uh, Monday morning. So they've got the whole street and sidewalk to work with. They'll show up Friday night, early Saturday morning, and spend uh, six or seven hours setting up these huge cranes. I mean, they come in on uh, big trucks and they have to pound these together. <clears throat> and it's just like any steel work. You know, they take sledgehammers and, and put it together. So it's up ready to go, maybe um, eight in the morning. And then the work, where, whereas they may just be putting uh, HVAC equipment on a rooftop, then they're, they're ready to go mid-afternoon. They'll take it down, they leave. But what, when we complain, what we hear is that they can only move this equipment in the middle of the night. But when they've wrapped it up at 4 o'clock, guess what? 
they leave. All of a sudden, this hard and fast rule disappears, and they're going down the street um, with the big equipment. The other, so, you know, we need consistent stories and rules on that. And then the other thing is you need to include the PD. As somebody mentioned, 311 and the police department provide zero support in existing enforcement. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next speaker. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Peter Garza with the Carpenters Local 22 here in San Francisco. Uh, my colleagues pretty much have uh, it said most everything. The one thing, the issue that I'm, I'm bringing here to the table is today I received notice uh, from two general contractors stating that because they're not allowed to have or to, to get a permit that uh, the, in one case it was eight carpenters that would be dispatched and in another case it was 11 that'll be dispatched, we're supposed to be dispatched next week, uh, will not be dispatched until this moratorium is, uh, or this, this pause, so to speak, is uh, turned around. So consequently, it is affecting uh, not only the carpenters, my members, uh, but it in turn will affect the operating engineers, the laborers, iron workers, on down the line. These, in most cases, are people that live here in the city and county of San Francisco, and in my case, or in our case as carpenters, if you're not swinging a hammer, you're not making any money. When it rains, nobody gets paid. When there's holdups, job holdups, nobody gets paid. So consequently, we hope that you'll uh, move this along as quickly as possible and uh, get it to a final resolution. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment on item number five? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Okay, um, Supervisor Kim. Yeah, I'll just make a couple of closing comments. I really appreciate um, all the folks that came out to today's hearing. Um, when we had called for it a month ago, I don't think we were anticipating um, this level of turnout. Um, but I, I do just want to say that our office is committed to working with everyone, um, both our residents, our contractors, our construction workers, and our developers, um, to just make sure that we are putting to forward a balanced proposal um, for our neighborhood. And actually, as those buildings go up, more residents will move in. And of course, we still have many more blocks that we are even RFPing out at this moment. And actually, one is going to be coming up before us in the next item, 181 Fremont. Um, but I know that many more blocks are going to be built out in this very small area, particularly along the Folsom Street corridor. And what we would really like to just see is a coordinated effort moving forward with really clear guidelines that our residents can understand when they're issued, um, why they're issued and um, and some clear kind of date notifications and how the notification process happens. Um, I do want to appreciate, I think that we do have some standards and best practices in place. I think DPW has outlined some of that. We'd like to adopt some of those in DBI and increase some of the on-site um, um, uh, monitoring that could happen both with our contractors and DBI, so not just DBI ourselves. We would, of course, like our contractors to be able to be available to our residents 24 hour, um, 24 seven either. And I really do imagine all, um, that this will be a very temporary um, um, prohibition that we're going to be able to move forward. You know, maybe you know in a week or two um, as we work through some of these um, procedures and processes. Um, but I do really appreciate um, all of this time and effort being spent on just a small area of our city, but a very, very important and growing area of our city. And I just look forward um, to the final outcome and policy moving forward. 
Thank you, and uh, I want to agree that this uh, area of the city, it's, uh, it's really exciting uh, what's going on there and what's going to be uh, going on there, especially once we get the transit center done and get the downtown extension done. Uh, this is going to be a hub regionally, and it's just amazing. And one day we'll get there, and then this will all seem like ancient history, and we'll just have a, a beautiful, wonderful uh, neighborhood. Um, but in the, in the meantime, um, you know, I, I'm glad that there is a process in place uh, to try to uh, make sure that best practices are being used, to make sure that night work is really happening when it needs to happen and not gratuitously. I, I applaud the Department of Building Inspection for wanting to move in that direction and for being responsive uh, to what is now a residential neighborhood in addition to other things. Um, my uh, concern is that it shouldn't take the shutting down of a permit process to do that. It shouldn't take shutting down a permit process that is laying people off from work and preventing work from happening uh, and slowing down projects to do that. Uh, I, I know that there have been conversations that have been happening, but uh, DBI could have been doing this all along and could have issued guidelines, could have come up with best practices, could have just altered its criteria for night permits and the parameters that it has around what you can and can't do at night. The department has had it within its power to do that all along. There's no reason that it should have taken a shutdown, a policy change, as this email said, to stop issuing these permits to do that. And so that is my concern. That is a very, very, uh, uh, it is a heavy-handed way of accomplishing what the department had within its power all along to accomplish without resort to, resorting to this. And, and so I, I hope that this process works its way through uh, very quickly. Uh, and I hope that in the future, whether it's in, in this part of the city or any other part of the city, that there are, the, there are these kinds of challenges, it can be worked out without simply saying we're not, just not going to issue permits anymore until we can figure it out. Uh, and we can't tell you exactly how long it's going to take. We think it'll take within a month, but who knows. Um, so uh, that's my concern, and I uh, applaud everyone who's going to participate in trying to make uh, uh, it a reality that the work will be able to resume uh, and that it will do so in a way uh, that we will be minimizing the impacts on the surrounding neighbors. Um, so thank you for everyone who came out today. And colleagues, if there are no additional comments, uh, Supervisor Kim, do you want to continue this to the call of the chair or file it? Um, for now, I'd like to continue to the call of the chair. Okay. So the motion is to continue item 5 to the call of the chair, and we'll take that without objection. Thank you. Um, Madam Clerk, can you please call item number 6? Item number six is an ordinance approving a development agreement between the city and 181 Fremont Street, LLC, for property located in the Trans Bay Redevelopment Project area. And uh, the mayor and Supervisor Kim are the co-sponsors of item six. Supervisor Kim. If folks, could, uh, if, if folks could please uh, save the conversations for outside, that would be great. But okay. we encourage you to talk outside. Yep. <laughs> Supervisor Kim. Thank you, colleagues. Um, speaking about Transbay um, and downtown and Rincon Hill area, um, before us today is a development agreement to allow a variation um, to developers' on-site affordable housing obligation that um, would allow a project sponsor to pay a fee um, in lieu of their on-site obligation. While as 
um, a policy, I prefer um, on-site units, um, particularly for our rental housing. In this particular circumstance, um, the developer has agreed to contribute additional funding for affordable housing that would enable the production of more affordable housing in the Trans Bay area. I'd like to just recognize, um, and we have before us today, our OCII um, director, Tiffany Bohe, um, and her staff, um, Courtney Pash and Christy Maher, along with her former staff member, Mike Rizzo, who's no longer with us but worked on this deal, for their work and their counsel on the unique circumstances um, in Trans Bay District. Um, as you know, this is a, a redevelopment area plan um, that we have been allowed by the state to continue to wind down despite the dissolution of redevelopment. And under um, our state agreement, we have committed to 35% affordable housing, which is really an incredible goal. Um, for our city to meet, particularly in the light of the fact that we are building so much transit um, and office in this area that will really make it an environmental smart growth um, neighborhood. And they have worked really closely with our office throughout the process and have really pushed to have the highest fee feasible based on the sales projection in the Trans Bay area. I also want to recognize, I know, Mayor's Office of Housing Director um, Olson Lee um, also advised us in this process. So under this proposal, um, 181 uh, Fremont would pay a fee that differs from the in-lieu fee paid by other projects in the city. So just to put this into context, if... 181 Freeman had been allowed to offsite their 11 units, which would have been um, below market rate. They would have paid $5.4 million. Um, and the deal that OCII has really um, negotiated on behalf of our city, um, this developer will now be paying $13.85 million um, to city to build affordable housing. That is almost three times more than what they would have paid in our normal affordable housing policy. Um, it would be used only for the creation of affordable housing within the Trans Bay project area um, to really counter some of the concerns around segregation of class um, in our neighborhoods. We are ensuring that these below market rate units would occur within the neighborhood. This fee would help subsidize now 69 affordable standalone units two blocks away from 181 Fremont versus the 11 units um, that we had on site. And these 69 new units would be available at 50 to 50% uh, AMI versus the 100% AMI for um, on site for sale units that it would have been applicable again, only um, to the uh, 10 units in the building, allowing for deeper affordability. Um, 181 Fremont has willingly agreed to pay substantial fees for both the Community Facility District and the Community Benefit District Assessment and has always supported the formation of those districts and has not participated in any effort to either oppose or litigate um, these assessments, which we really appreciate because it will help build our terminal and hopefully the downtown extension of Caltrain. Um, we are proposing modifications to the development agreement um, which we have circulated to your offices and I will present later that affirms these commitments. This project is already under construction um, but will provide 1,200 union jobs, some of which we've heard about earlier and they have signed local hiring agreements and they are meeting their goals for local hire. The variation has broad support in the affordable housing community and that constituency re recognizes the unique characters of this building type and housing project and we also, you know, this highlights a policy concern that our office has had um, with home ownership below market rate units which which is that often um, our residents can afford to pay the mortgages on their below market rate units, but then can't afford to make their HOA um, 
uh, payments, and that was a consideration we made when we um, initially even agreed to negotiate with the developer to offsite um, those units, um, knowing that um, HOA fees can go anywhere from five hundred to even four thousand dollars a month. I mean, really. Uh, an, a, a very high amount for some of our middle class residents. Yeah? <laughs> Supervisor Cohen is expressing shock at $4,000 a month HOA fees. But that is um, some of the fees that are commanded by some of our most luxury um, condos, and certainly that's what these waterfront high-rise condos would have looked like. Um, 181 Fremont variation respects, uh, represents a genuine effort to make sure that those in need of affordable units can actually partake in living in the Trans Bay area and become active members of the new burgeoning neighborhood that we are working so hard to attain. And finally, I just wanted to say that you know our office is working with the Mayor's Office of Housing and the Mayor's Office um, to really explore the concept of um, tiered um, developer fees, um, tier off-site developer fees. We recognize that a waterfront condo on the 40th floor shouldn't pay the same off-site fee that an 18-unit building low-rise in the Excelsior neighborhood would have to pay. And what is exciting about this negotiation is that this actually put some precedent um, in allowing us some variation of um, off-site fee based on the value of those units. And I'm hoping that this will help drive um, some of the discussion to make sure that we are never leaving any dollars on the table, um, that we are really looking at ways to maximize how we can generate revenue for affordable housing. And so we do have Courtney Pash from OCII and Kevin Guy from Planning to speak about this item today. I hope I didn't take up all the talking points. <laughs> but I'm just very excited about this. <laughs> Wanted to express that. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Kim. My name is Kevin Guy with uh, planning staff and uh, Supervisor Cohen as well. I will try to keep the redundancies to a minimum because you did uh, summarize many of the points very well. Uh, by way of background, uh, the Planning Commission in 2012, uh, December 2012, approved the entitlements for this project, uh, which is a 52-story building with about 400,000 square feet of office uses and 74 dwelling units. Uh, so the buildings that did exist on the site have been demolished and the project has begun construction. Uh, so from a planning code standpoint, the project is situated within the Transbase C3 Special Use District. This SUD generally applies to the privately owned parcels within the Transbay Redevelopment Area, and as was indicated, the redeve redevelopment plan, in accordance with state law, requires that at least 35% of new housing in the project area be affordable. So again, this goal would be achieved through a combination of standalone affordable housing projects, increased affordable requirements for development on publicly owned parcels, and requiring on-site affordable units for market rate developments. So uh, in terms of the planning code requirements and furtherance of these goals, this SUD does require that all residential developments provide a minimum of 15% on-site affordable units within, again, those market rate developments. The SUD also prohibits off-site construction or in lieu fee payment uh, as a means to satisfy these uh, requirements. So applying these requirements would result in 11 affordable dwelling units within the 181 Fremont project. So the sponsor is proposing to enter into this development agreement with the city to exempt the project from the on-site affordable requirements and enable the in-lieu fee payment for the develop development of affordable housing opportunities in the redevelopment area. Um, just to uh, reiterate some of the points raised by Supervisor Kim, because these are, uh, I think, important figures, uh, the development agreement, again, would require that the sponsor contribute $13.85 million uh, to the development of housing within the project area. So again, for comparative purposes, if we applied our standard in lieu fee requirement to this project, 
the fee amount were to be approximately $5.4 million. Um, and OCII and most staff have estimated that, um, that this is equivalent to the creation of, uh, or this fee established for the DA would uh, develop as many as 69 affordable dwelling units, which is a net gain over 58 that the standard requirement of uh, 11 on-site units would create within the project. Uh, so I should note that both the OCII Commission and the Planning Commission have approved various actions to enable the proposed in-lieu fee payment structure. Uh, at their hearing last Thursday, the Planning Commission did recommend uh, approval of the development agreement, finding that this process will enable the creation of more affordable housing opportunities in the redevelopment area. I should also note that staff has received no comments from the public in opposition to this proposal. So thank you for consideration. consideration. I'm available for any questions. And uh, according pass from OCII, uh, we'll discuss the details a little bit further. Thank you. Good afternoon, Supervisors. I'm Courtney Pash, Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure, Acting Project Manager for the Transbay Redevelopment Project Area. So as Kevin discussed, the Planning Commission uh, took two actions um, on October 16th, amending the 309 uh, approval and, and uh, the development agreement. In addition to hearing those two actions, the um, Board of Supervisors will also be acting as the legislative body to OCII, or the successor agency, um, hearing the decision by the community, uh, the Commission on Community Investment and Infrastructure on the on-site affordable housing requirement um, variation. So on October 10th, uh, the Commission granted a variation from the on-site affordable housing requirement in the redevelopment plan and made findings that there are extraordinary circumstances applicable to this, pro this property and that enforcement of this requirement would result in practical difficulties for development and unreasonable limitation beyond the intent of the plan. This project is unique because it is the only approved or proposed mixed-use development with a commercial office and residential uses in the plan area, and it has the smallest number of residential units in the project area. Furthermore, the residential units are located on the upper 15 floors of the tower. In this case, the small number of units at the top of a luxury tower with HOA fees in excess of $2,000 per unit creates practical difficulties and undue hardships for the BMR owners for a number of reasons. First, per state law, HOA fees cannot be adjusted based on the status of a unit or the income level of the homeowner. BMR owners generally are required to pay the same amount as other owners. Second, while the city and OCII have programs that ensure the affordability of units at initial occupancy, there is no program for assisting BMR buyers when increases in HOA fees occur over time. Third, HOA members may approve increases in HOA fees without the support of BMR owners because BMR owners, um, particularly in a development with inclusionary units, typically constitute a small minority of the total HOA membership. Finally, when HOA fees increase, BMR owners may have difficulty making the higher monthly payments for HOA fees. The result is that housing costs may become unaffordable and some BMR owners will face the hardship of having to sell their unit at the reduced price. Maria Benjamin, the Director of Homeownership and Below Market Rate Programs for the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, is here to answer any questions you may have about some of these HOA issues. Again, as Kevin and Supervisor Kim discussed, the $13.85 million contribution is two and a half times greater than the contribution would have been under the city's inclusionary housing program. And the fee was determined through negotiation with the project sponsor and backed up by a market study conducted by the Concord Group, which determined the net additional revenue that would accrue to the developer 
if the 11 on-site affordable units were converted to market rate units. Again, the fee would be used to fund up to 69 units or a net gain of 58 units of affordable housing within the redevelopment project area. For example, the fee could be used to fund some of the affordable housing on Transbay Block 8, which is just two blocks from, the 180, from 181 Fremont. OCII is on track to meet the Transbay affordable housing obligation of 35% affordable housing through construction of approximately 1,200 units of affordable housing in the project area, many of which are under construction or in pre-development phase. And again, I want to reiterate that the project sponsor has been supportive of the CFD from the outset, and the development agreement includes provisions in it that would require this the project sponsor to vote in favor of the CFD and to pay a fee equivalent of the CFD that would be due if the CFD were not formed at the certificate of occupancy. Again, OCII staff strongly recommends approval of this item and we are here to answer any questions. Thank you, Ms. Pash. Actually, I was hoping um, uh, that you could articulate more. Sorry. If you, um, um, your point about the HOA fees, because I know that that's um, a policy conversation that we've had before, but I think for members of the public that don't understand um, the full policy reasoning behind that, you know, one question that I know that our office had asked, because it's not just for 101 Fremont, but for our other um, BMR units for home ownership in the South Beach area in particular, we were running across many residents who were paying their mortgages but were having a difficult time with their HOA fees. And I know that we had talked about whether we could set policies where we could differentiate HOA fees based on income and some of the challenges to that. And I was hoping that you could actually outline what those are um, so members of the public understand why this isn't the route that we're pursuing for those 11 units um, on site BMR. Well, the um, determination of HOA fees is set by the, um, at the state level. So there's particular laws around um, how HOAs are established and, and who pays what. Um, you know, maybe Maria Benjamin can answer, oh, okay. with the Mayor's Office of Housing can answer uh, more specifically, but that's the problem is that you cannot set HOA fees based on, uh, based on ownership status. Um, do you have anything to add? Good Thanks, Ms. Benjamin. Sorry to ask that question to Ms. Pash then. Did yeah. Great. <laughs> um, that is the issue, and but we are looking and researching ways that we can address it in other ways. Um, uh, but the, the, the hurdle right now is that it is mandated by the state. What is mandated by the state? The that in a condominium association, the there there cannot be a reduction in um, uh, homeowners' uh, dues based on income or based on anything. It has mm -hmm. to be equitably split amongst all the, the units that are there. And just so members of the public might understand, what is the, is there, is there a historical re policy reason for that being set in state law? Because I think when I mention it to residents, they're often surprised to hear that that was even contemplated at a state level. Yeah. It's, uh, well, I think it's um, that each homeowner is responsible for their share of, the, mm -hmm. of, of of it, it's, I'm sure it's a litigious, uh, um, um, so that so that there's not one homeowner that or a group of home, homeowners that has more of an interest in the mm -hmm. homeowner association than another. Mm -hmm. It's actually for their own protection and um, mm -hmm. um, rights. Um, yeah. Thank you. Now, I just I, I think that's an important point for our residents to hear and understand because I think they're often surprised to hear that this is even something um, that's set at the state level, which is you know 
that we can't have our middle-income residents um, that are in our home ownership program get a reduction in their home ownership, um, home ownership association dues. Yeah, I think, I think it's designed to prevent some homeowners from ganging up on, on others, although I think there probably is a policy rationale for some sort of break for BMR units, but that's for the well, legislature. We're, we're try, trying to figure that out. Yeah. So, okay. Thank, Thank you, you, Ms. Benjamin. Thank you. Thank you. And we do have our director here. Um, Tiffany Bohe. Thank you. Through the chair, Tiffany Bohe, director of OCII. Just to add to Ms. Benjamin's remarks, um, a few years ago in 2008, there was a movement uh, to create uh, different HOA dues for low and moderate income homeowners, Assembly Bill 952, which was vetoed by the governor. Then um, it's certainly a matter of policy uh, to make another run at it because we are um, seeing that this is an ongoing issue citywide. Thank you. Great. So are there any other speakers on the item before we go to public comment? Great. So we will now go to public comment on item 6. Is there any public comment? Seeing none, public comment is closed. And Supervisor Kim, I understand that you have some minor amendments to make? Yes. Yes, so I did describe them. They are actually passed um, to both of your offices as well. Okay. Uh, so Supervisor Kim has proposed uh, amendments to item 6. Can we take those amendments without objection? Do we okay. have to do public comment? Oh, I closed public, I oh, closed you public comment. Oh, yeah. oh sorry. I'm, Once in a while I'm I so forget. Quickly. I didn't forget them. Um, and so we'll take the amendments without objection. And uh, can I have a motion to forward item 6 as amended to the full board with positive recommendation? Okay. And without objection, that will be the order. Madam Clerk, can you please call item number four? Yes. Item number four is an ordinance amending the planning code and zoning map to modify controls for uses and accessory uses in commercial and residential commercial districts. President Chu is the author of item four, and Justin True from his office is here. Mr. True. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Chair Wiener, Supervisors uh, Cohen and Kim, Judson True from Board of Supervisors, President David Chu's office. Uh, thank you very much for hearing this item today. Uh, the ordinance before you today is part of a, a larger legislative effort that began some years ago, and we did work closely with Livable City on it, and I want to appreciate uh, their efforts and Tom Radulovich's efforts. It began as one large ordinance, but has since been broken up into se uh, several uh, more digestible ordinances. And in fact, uh, to date, uh, more than five ordinances that came from this original legislation have been approved and gone through this committee, including an uh, important piece of legislation on transferable development rights and some other uh, um, efforts to help limited corner commercial uses and, and commercial uses, and uh, we're happy to continue to, to move some of these items through. Um, speaking broadly, this ordinance is intended to update sections of our planning code to advance a number of the city's pressing goals, implementing the Better Streets Plan by creating walkable neighborhoods and safe and attractive streetscapes, redu reducing traffic congestion, which I know is a big topic today, making our city more sustainable by encouraging uh, bicycling, walking, and transit use. It also helps us in our efforts to preserve and reuse historic buildings and to encourage local businesses to grow and thrive here in San Francisco. I do also want to note that uh, some of the uh, provisions related to Van Ness do uh, coincide nicely with the Van Ness bus rapid transit project that the city is pursuing. Uh, these ordinances will also make the, uh, the planning code simpler and easier to use by consolidating and clarifying useful controls and deleting outdated uh, ones and removing uh, pages of controls and special districts that have outlived uh, their relevance. Uh, for example, there's a provision in here related to horsepower restrictions that doesn't seem particularly um, apropos anymore. Uh, our goal is for well-designed projects that fit well in their neighborhoods and advance the various goals and policies of neighborhood plans and the general plans. Uh, this ordinance does focus mostly on the dense, walkable, and historic neighborhoods of the northeastern part of the city, downtown, Chinatown, Waterfront, and Van Ness. 
but does have some impact outside of those areas. Uh, we have over the years worked with many stakeholders, including neighborhood groups, SF Heritage, uh, in addition to the Planning Commission's approval uh, with conditions, the Small Business Commission and Historic Preservation Commission have also recommended it. Uh, Diego Sanchez is here from the Planning de Department. If you need to hear from him, he's standing in for Aaron Starr, who's been working on it and is un unavailable today, but Aaron will be back next week. And speaking next week today, I have a very limited uh, request of the committee. Um, I have an amendment of the whole that would uh, mostly uh, delete outdated sections of the code that are still in this version uh, that, that's been around for a while. Uh, and so my request of the committee today would be rather than going into seven or eight of the big details of the, of the, of the legislation, I would request that the committee accept the amendment of the whole to give the public a chance for the next week to look at that, those changes. And then uh, uh, Aaron Starr and I would come back and go through in slightly more detail uh, next week. So I have that for the clerk, uh, the red line for the clerk and copies for the committee members and a a few for the uh, public as well. Okay, thank you. So the request is that we adopt the amendment of the whole, continue this one week so we can have a more substantive discussion uh, next week. Next week is our, we will be entertaining formula retail next week, and so it'll, uh, it'll be a long day, so. I'll definitely be watching all of that, happy to go afterwards. Okay, terrific. Um, okay, uh, I assume will the department defer its presentation until next week then, or? Okay, I think that might make sense. Um, unless you're, if you have a burning desire to speak today. Okay, great. Mr. Sanchez is kindly here, um, but okay. uh, I would, I think it makes more sense for Mr. Starr, Aaron Starr next Okay, week. terrific. Um, so uh, with that, we will open item number four up for public comment. Is there any public comment on item number four? Uh, please come forward, Mr. Radulovich. Thank you, I won't be able to be here next week. Um, we have an, uh, an all-day meeting, of course. If you go into the evening hours, then I'll come by. But uh, uh, I just wanted to say that um, this ordinance has been a long time coming. Um, as you uh, get a chance to peruse it, you'll, you'll see some familiar provisions. I think we, we broke some new and interesting ground with this. Uh, one great example is um, trying to encourage accessory uh, production uses. So if you have a retail business and you're also making things and selling them to other businesses, the rules in C districts are very restrictive. Supervisor Wiener, you relax those rules in uh, NC districts to make sure that we're actually helping um, produce, uh, encourage businesses that are doing that accessory production. But uh, this would catch the C districts up uh, to the rules that we have for NC districts. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is the Van Ness Corridor. We talked a little bit uh, earlier in the meeting about Second Street and making sure there's a good land use response to the uh, improvements that are planned on Second Street. Uh, we, we made a big commitment as a city to the Van Ness Corridor. This would actually lower the parking requirements in the Van Ness Corridor to those of the surrounding zoning districts. It's much higher requirements in the uh, Van Ness Corridor right now than the immediately adjacent neighborhoods, which seems a little weird. So um, there's a lot in here that uh, I think is important to the city moving forward to try and you know make it uh, more economically vital, more vi vital, more walkable, and so on. And uh, we hope that uh, next week uh, you will uh, support this and send it to the full board. And just wanted to thank Supervisor Chu's office uh, for uh, you know putting this together. There's been a lot of pieces of this that have been broken off and um, passed successfully already. And uh, this is the last big chunk. So uh, looking forward to this being uh, resolved. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any additional? Public comment on item four. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Uh, colleagues, uh, uh, President Chu has proposed an amendment of the whole. Uh, can we take that amendment without objection? Yes. Without objection, those, that am those amendments are adopted. And uh, could I please have a motion to continue item four uh, by one week? 
Okay. Without objection, uh, item four is continued one week. Madam Clerk, is there any additional business before the committee? There's no further business. And we are adjourned. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye, everyone.